The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yeah, you'll never record me alive, see? Too late, man, too late. And tonight, we are talking about crime. Dun-dun. The best kind in popular culture. So we're going to explore how crime is represented in different mediums in popular culture and what it tells us about our views on crime in general. So to start out with, Don... How are we going to find crime? Uh, it's a tricky one because technically, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say what we're actually sort of discussing in this episode is villainy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, because crime is specifically breaking like society's laws. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's cut, it's cut and dry what that is. But what you kind of get is this weird back and forth. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a lot of stuff. It's 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 kind of reciprocal, where society affects entertainment, entertainment affects society, perspectives shift between kind of the two extremes. Mm-hmm. Because crime isn't always seen as a bad thing, right? In in pop culture, for for different reasons, and when you're discussing how crime is represented, you're kind of looking at not just how people view like rule breakers and such, but what people think of society in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Can you give an example? I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of trying to dance around that a little bit for a sec. <laughs> okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. No this problem. is why the, this is why this seems weird because what we tend to do is when we present a, a criminal, Breaking the law, we we have different ways of explaining why they're doing it, mm-hmm. and this is why uh, the example you had brought up uh, before we started recording. Sometimes criminals are Robin Hood, yes, who, who was seen as a crusader against an unjust society. Mm-hmm. Sometimes criminals are Al Capone, who is generally seen as as like a gangster, somebody who is is taking from society. Mm-hmm. What what he doesn't deserve, and then sometimes it flips in that sometimes Al Capone is actually Robin Hood, right? Yeah, all of that happens, mm. depending and on it, who's writing the story. Well, it, it does, and it depends who they're writing for, and mm-hmm. kind of um, kind of what ta- what 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 um era you're 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 writing in the. As in what era the writer is in or what era the setting is in? What era the writer is in. Okay. Because because, that... Sorry, I was just going to say, because the setting can often determine how people feel about criminals as well. The setting, and don't forget, too, like reality. Yeah, of course. 
Uh, because there's 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 sort of when it comes to crime, and this is where the idea of mm-hmm. villainy is somebody who does evil things, right? And a criminal is somebody who breaks the law. And this is where I say we're sort of discussing how villainy is framed off. Because again, Robin Hood breaks the law, but that was seen as serving a greater cause. Right. Yeah. He's a freedom fighter. Yeah. That that the law was unjust, and the the leadership was was undeserved. In, in mm-hmm. Robin Hood's story. And that gets at, there's sort of two things about crime and villainy that you get in entertainment mm-hmm. that you kind of keep in mind. Um, one is uh, kind of the real world view of how crime happens. Okay. And the two extremes being that crime is something inherent to the criminal. Mm-hmm. You break the law because you're bad. Right, because of bad genes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the opposite extreme of that is that criminals are actually victims of society. They break the law because they have no choice. After all, they had a bad childhood. That's right. Or they they live in excruciating poverty or all kinds of different things. Exactly, yeah. And those, those are the two extreme ends of that. Mm-hmm. And then coming sort of from that is the two extremes of crime and criminality and villainy presented in, in entertainment mm-hmm. of the cr- crime is all about punishment and it's who do we punish? Are we punishing the criminal right. or is the criminal punishing society? Ooh, that's deep, man. Well, it's, it's a move that, that actually is kind of, it's a movie thing. Movies really kind of confront that issue. Mm-hmm. It comes up in other medium, but specifically film is where you kind of see that. And it comes from a weird place, but I think we'll be getting to that in just, just a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes, we will. We'll definitely get to that shortly. Okay. All right. So what medium would you like to start with? I think the easiest one to start with would be, uh, why well, I said print. Mm-hmm. Because that's one of your earliest media. Um that's a good place to start, yeah. I mean, we could start with like plays and fairy tales and things like that if we wanted to, or um, you know, oral storytelling. But print's probably the best place to start. Yeah, and and, and I went back the the first example of how you frame off, frame off uh, crime and criminality in that mm-hmm. goes back to Julius Caesar. Okay. Now examples go back even further because the first. Um, when I was looking for an example of, say, a villain portrayed as a hero. Right. I think the earliest example is one of our earliest stories, and that was Gilgamesh. Right. Because he starts as a villain in that. Okay. Interesting. But I went back to Julius Caesar and the Druids. Mm-hmm. How so? Okay. Because uh, anybody who knows about, like, uh, like say, uh, European British Isle history... Mm-hmm. The Druids didn't write anything down. They were strictly like an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we don't have a lot of information about what they were like. They got naked and danced around trees. Maybe. We don't even know if they did that. Well, that's what the Romans say. I believe the Romans. Case and that's, <laughs> see, it now that's exactly what I was getting at. When mm-hmm. the, the Romans moved into that area... Right. There, there was some disagreements about, you know, neighborly borders and such, we'll say. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the information we had that, that people did take 
as as fact up until maybe 50 to 100 years ago right were the reports that were made by the romans because the druids didn't write anything down mm-hmm. the the romans did and they talked about all kinds of crazy crazy stuff that they were into like blood sacrifices which we know they they were but the 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 romans had it that they would just kill like hundreds of people and they had the wicker men which were the big statues that they would load up with people and set on fire which we know they had the effigies that they would burn in ritual but we don't think they filled them with people except if they look like nicholas cage apparently that's oh no that's the bees no the bees but anyway <laughs> okay sorry we, we think they might have filled them with cats though good choice yeah because the celts considered them bad luck and there's weird there's ideas that like you know the romans said oh and they like eat babies and do all this crazy horrible stuff that because the romans were were essentially at war with these people right they there there's this theory that a lot of these reports were exaggerated just to drum up yeah to drum up negative press for the romans because then you know that would get every young Roman lad. How can we allow this to happen? I'm going to join the centurions and help fight these evil despots. Blah. So what you're saying is they demonize their enemies, huh? That sounds familiar. Well, that's right. And and what it what it kind of gets into, they didn't just uh, demonize them, mm-hmm. but as this kind of goes on, as the the fervor hits. Now for for the Romans versus the Druids, it kind of peters out. Right. Julius Caesar had had personally um not instigated isn't the word oh requisitioned these reports from his troops that were heading to that area right and it's thought that a lot of the stuff that that he had had cataloged and seen was kind of accurate Mm -hmm. that there were people before him that were coming up with these crazy stories and then people after that embellished a lot of this stuff but it was that idea that you're not only like vilifying them, but you start reading into into the the designated villain all of the stuff that you don't like. Of course, and that's kind of that's kind of something that you see continue through um, through through print in the form of news. Right, right. Because uh, the 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 next big example we've talked about before was Jack the Ripper. Okay. It's a bit of bit of a jump. But Jack the Ripper is kind of the beginning of, of like the modern news industry. Right, yeah, we talked about that before. I do remember that. Yeah, okay. He yeah, he kind of is. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's cause again what, what you had because newspapers back in, in, in the earliest days there was a lot of um a lot of of embellishment we'll say because it was it was more about selling paper than providing information right and and that was where the the jack the ripper thing got blown up way out of proportion and again it was this idea that they'd start reading things into it Mm -hmm. based on on he was the commensurate villain and there was things like he he when you look at it factually he wasn't really that big a deal he killed like six people, and I think now two of them they think might not have been him. Okay. He he did this in like the bad part of town. Somebody's murdering prostitutes in Whitechapel. 
yeah, that was kind of a thing. Like, um, yeah, I could see that. They, they, it vacillates depending on on what what paper and and who they think their audience is, who they're claiming Jack the Ripper is. So mm-hmm. the one the one time somebody did kind of see him when they talked about that in the paper, I remember seeing it. it's an illustration. It's the devil. He's got little pointy beard and the Mister Spock eyebrows and stuff and. Uh-huh. The, there was another point where um, they were claiming, well, he's got to have some kind of medical training because of the precision of 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 his cuts. And there was um, it was like a cousin or something of the of the 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 queen. They, they were yeah, claiming, yeah. and that was why they couldn't catch him because royalty was was protecting him, and he was. And that was if you were writing a paper for the masses, it was obviously he's one of the hoi polloi, and you're like. Yeah, the surgical precision of the guy they call Jack the Ripper. Exactly. Well, yeah. you know, and and it was totally un- infactual. Like it, it, mm-hmm. if it, if you really want, you can see the 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 crime scene photos nowadays. And yeah, he there was no precision. He basically just kind of reached in and pulled these people apart. But you'd you'd read into this whatever the sense of villainy you wanted to portray was. Right. Right. Makes sense. Hmm. And then that continues the next big example I can think of. That is uh, weed. Okay. That Which weed are we talking about here? The, uh, the, you know. That kind. kind okay, just, just making sure. Just checking. I wasn't sure if weed was a name or something like that. <laughs> oh, no. No, it was, it was the whole thing with marijuana. Right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the reason it was considered so evil in North America and still is in the States, a lot of the roots of that came from uh, the, 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 the early days, like the turn of the last century. Because hemp could be used to make paper. And I, was it Randolph Hearst? I think it was. That's yeah, I know the, what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, it was, I think it was him that owned uh, like a lot of paper production places. Yep, yep. And hemp was seen as an effective replacement. Yep. So he made this step to demonize it. Yep. E- even though hemp and, and, and the uh, <laughs> kind of thing are, are, are they're, 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 they are different. Oh, yeah, you can't smoke hemp. Not at well, all. You you'll, you'll get very sick if you try. Yeah, you, you can. <laughs> you'll, you'll get a headache and pass out, but it won't be fun. Um, well, exactly right. But the thing is, it was a cousin to marijuana, so they used it to demonize marijuana. And yep. as an end result, it became evil, and they used that as an excuse to, to ban it, and all the other countries followed suit. Yeah, well, and it's but it's not just that, because mm-hmm. it starts as this thing that they don't want hemp taking off, so they start the smear campaign. But then you read things into it, because a big part of why hemp was evil, why the marijuana was the worst thing ever, was mm-hmm. because the Mexicans liked it. Dun, right. Dun. That might yeah, sound Yeah, the familiar. local weed. Yeah, and, and that was part of it. And then it got associated with, you know, because remember, the U.S. and Mexico didn't have good relations at this time. No, they didn't. As as opposed to the fine connections they share nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, but that got tied in, and then because those Mexican guys liked it. It was, it was bad. It was, you know, that was all part of it. You'd read all of this extra thing. So everything mm-hmm. you didn't like, you could heap in the one big pile and then shake a fist at. Yep. Basically. Yeah. Oh. That's true. And then 
that gets reappropriated when you get to like a couple decades later in the 30s and the 40s because if you remember then mm-hmm. marijuana becomes a quote unquote black thing right yeah and it was because like you know that black people like to do weed and that's how we know it's evil and it became part of that it was when it became jazz cigarettes cuz jazz was the uh the last century term for urban as really? I actually didn't know. They called them jazz cigarettes? I'd never heard that one before. Yeah, because it was it was part of that whole that whole scene that remember the jazz music was mm-hmm. evil and corrupting and it got you into these drugs and yeah. and the the worst thing and I kid you not, and I say this every time jazz comes up because this sort of mm-hmm. makes me laugh. It was actually believed that like the jazz scene was just a way for like black men to meet white women. <clears throat> you know? Uh-huh. And that was a thing. There were flyers and stuff. And it builds... Because, again, you just... Whatever you don't like, you all start grouping together. Right. And and then you call it criminal. And you, you, you make it so it's morally wrong and it's damaging to society. And mm-hmm. then we can all shake a fist at it. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that comes out of the news, essentially. <laughs> right. Well, the news has to create, as you've often pointed out, heroes and villains. It's all about creating a narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, and making people uh, feel content in their prejudices and beliefs by reinforcing them, or at least reinforcing the ones that the status quo wants reinforced. Yeah, that's a pretty good. It's uh, a pretty good way of putting it. I mean, the news ultimately is a you know is a control device for society. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's it's another thing that I think vacillates. Hmm. I mean, because there is no one news, there are different factions, right? So, yeah. But the thing is, most people tend to get their news from one faction or another. So, I'm not saying the news is all controlling because, again, there's not one voice of the news. There's actually many of them, depending on the era. Sometimes the news does all kind of blend and work together, and sometimes they do actually have conflicting opinions, depending on what sells. Yeah. And what works for them. Mm hmm. Yeah, because that's a, that's the 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 same thing too. Because uh, mm-hmm. going back to like say our Al Capone thing, right? At different times, it'll go the other way. That in a way, we'll decriminalize behavior, right? Because that's where public opinion is going. I'm not sure if it's where public opinion is going. I guess sometimes it is. I think it's it's often where. The people who are writing the news would like it to go, or the people who own the newspapers would like it to go. It's the same reason why you know a dictator is a strong leader if you know they're friends of your country, and they're an evil tyrant if they're enemies of your country. That's and true. that role can change depending on the year or decade and how much trade they're doing with your country. <laughs> it's it's true. I th- I think. Um... And There's I would all... say that the same person can be a civil rights leader or they can be a dangerous terrorist, depending on whose agenda it suits. Yeah, it's true. And, and they can be both at the same time, really. Often are. Yeah, they often are. Again, to different communities and different groups. I mean, just look at, say, the Black Panthers back in the old days. No, I'm not talking about you know the, the comic character. I'm talking about the actual real people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Black Panthers were portrayed in mass media often as being uh let's just say 
not freedom fighters. They were basically black terrorists for the most part. And mm-hmm. maybe a few of them were. I'm not, you know, there are conflicting reports about how that all went down. Um, but they're definitely within some circles. The Black Panthers were seen as heroes who were standing up for black people's rights against yeah. in an era where black people didn't have a lot of rights. Yeah, and that, and that kind of gets to um, when you get the, the sharpening effect. Mm-hmm. Where you can talk about things that um, you pay attention to stuff that highlights the point you're trying to get across. Yep. Because when you look at, say, any big group, big groups tend not to be homogenous, but we tend to see them as homogenous. Again, it's the whole, you know, yeah, sharpening effect, as you said, or just our brain simply sees groups as one person because it's easier to sort them that way. Yeah, and then that's where where this compiling happens that you can sort of cuz when you you mentioned the Black Panthers there were I forget the 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 name there were kind of two groups working together mhm that there was one one group that was uh which was the majority that was believed in essentially being on the defensive mhm that they weren't they 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 weren't about causing trouble for other people except right. when they started it and they they were all about, you know, just garnering the same kind of rights as everyone else. And then there was a smaller group that felt things weren't moving fast enough and you had to kind of apply a bit of the strong arm or you weren't going to get anybody to pay attention. Right, yeah. There's always a militant faction in almost any yeah. group, especially we, social change. Yeah, and when you see reports, depending on who they were report the the, the, the news outlet was reporting to... Mm-hmm. They would focus more on one over the other. Right, yeah. Where depending on who they were trying to scare. Well, and that's that's kind of what it what it is, eh? Like mm-hmm. if if you're trying to scare the old codgers, then you'd stress this whole and like they're arming themselves and you see them at like voting places standing there in their uniforms with guns and <gasps> and then if you were like one of the younger people who mm-hmm. thought the old people were full of shit. You were like, well, no, they've, they received threats that anybody voting in this, this election was going to get like killed off by a bunch of good old boys. So they're just like playing the defense. They're actually guarding to protect the citizens who are just doing what they're mm-hmm. not only entitled, but supposed to do voting. Exactly. Yeah. And so how, depending on where you were, determined how it was played out. Yep. And sometimes that kind of thing uh, plays out for really shallow reasons because this goes back to, uh, say, the turn of the last century mm-hmm. where the uh, the idea was when you had, like, say, your Al Capones and your, your, your Dillingers, and even when you go back to, say, the 1800s, you had, like, the James Gang and such. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These were all, like, violent criminals, but... People kind of latched on to this. It, it, it was that, that combination of sticking it to the man and these are people doing the kind of thing you wish you could. And they would get the portray. even their crimes would often get portrayed in a positive light just because it fit current public opinion and would sell more papers. Right, yeah. That's true. Oh no, and we have a long history of uh, glamorizing and romanticizing criminals who we think we can actually make into something greater than they really are. I mean, yeah, or, 
Bonnie and Clyde's a beautiful example of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple that, for those who don't know, Bonnie and Clyde, I believe it was in the 1930s, I think it was, were basically a couple of bank robbers that went on a little rampage. But because, you know, they were a pair of lovers and everything, everyone saw them as, you know, just kind of like wild youth going on a romantic ter- tryst or whatever across the landscape. <laughs> the fact that they were killing people doesn't really matter, but, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. The point is, is that um, it was a romantic story. Or at least it was portrayed yeah. as a romantic story later on. And by the way, spoiler, they die. <laughs> Everybody dies. Welcome to life. Yeah. Well, that's true. You die, <laughs> she dies, everybody dies. I know. Um, but anyway, um, so, and I mean, yeah, going back, Dillinger, uh, Billy the Kid, for example. Yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, we have a long history, especially of romanticizing, uh, not maybe at the time, but later on, the Western uh, outlaws yeah a lot of whom were just psychos and like were not nice people at all but for some reason in history's lens got totally romanticized yeah because it's it's that idea um that kind of bounces back and forth of how it's portrayed but it's that idea of being the person that doesn't have to play by the rules right right it's that fantasy yeah like that's a popular it's a popular character on both sides of the legality thing. Oh yeah. Like sometimes it manifests as like the, the, the wild criminal type that can like in the old West that the outlaw or the, when you get to more modern uh, examples would be like, you know, the suave cat burglar type that, you know, like steals Mm -hmm. the diamond and hangs out at the party. It's, it's that idea of, of, I don't have to play by by the same rules everyone else does. I'm better than people. And it manifests the other way at different times because you also get like the super cop. That's like, true. Like the Sherlock Holmes that, that catches the villain. Even though he has no legal authority, he's just a guy. Sort of. Well, he's he's super smart and that makes him different. Or you get like... um. Well, he was a consulting detective. The police only came to homes. I was just listening to a collection of them. The police only come mm. to homes when they're baffled. And he usually didn't, he didn't arrest anyone himself. He right. pretty much always had a police inspector with him who did the actual arresting. Holmes just yeah. pointed them in the right direction. Yeah, because he, he didn't have any kind of authority. Yeah, exactly. Which is but, fine. But it was that idea that even just as essentially some guy mm-hmm. who, who, who was an opium fiend, that... Oh yeah. The the cops would still have to come crawling to him to save the day. Right, yeah, that's true. And that's it's, how it really it, works. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that we, we get it like uh if you remember the seventies and that when you'd get, mm-hmm. you know, like your dirty Harry's and that. Right, yeah. The the guys that, that were engaging in criminal acts, but because they were doing it to catch the batter guy, I guess. Yes, yes. It it gave them impunity and, and it's 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 that same desire on the part of the audience that makes you know Dillinger the hero that makes you know every like Schwarzenegger character ever the hero that w- desire to be above the the rules. Well, it's as you said, it's a fantasy, right? It's yeah. that fantasy of being outside of the rules, being able to do whatever you want, and being able to inflict yourself on the world. <laughs> yeah which is a very 
I'm going to be sexist here, but it's a very male fantasy. Like, it's just something that... I, I, I do think... Actually, no, I shouldn't say that. Because women can be just as... Want to inflict themselves on the world as men. They do it different ways, I've noticed. But women and men both do try to inflict themselves on the world. They do, and kind of what you're getting at was mm. the was the idea, too, that it was portrayed as a typically male thing. Mm-hmm. But what you would always have come up in any of these times is you'd have like the female version that would like just take off. Right. And it was, it was again, it wasn't just because, you know, the guys were watching to ogle, like a lot of, of these other characters that uh, female audiences were really receptive to as well. It's just that the power fantasy is typically portrayed as the male power fantasy. I'm trying to remember. I saw something somewhere about, oh, what was it? How male and female power fantasies are different from each other. And they actually are. Yeah. Oh, how does it work? Um, I think it, remember, I remember something works something to the effect that women want to just be able to do whatever they want and get away with it. Whereas guys want to usually be the, like, the coolest guy ever. Like, it's an odd thing where men's power fantasies are more about the respect of other men, and mm-hmm. women's power fantasies mostly tend to be about running amok. It, um, yeah, I, I think... I'm not sure where I saw that, but anyway, I don't know if it's correct or not, but I think there's, I think there's like, running... What I mean is running amok in, in just being able to do whatever they want. Because not, 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 remember, mm. women, one could argue, have to listen to more of society's rules than men do. Right. Like there are a lot of restrictions that put on women's behavior and such. And so the idea, I guess, is that when women have a power fantasy, it's being free of all those rules. It's being able to get revenge on that bitch that, like, you know, caused you trouble and everything like that. And it's not being limited by your place in society or whatever. I mean, which I could understand. That would be a perfectly reasonable fantasy. Whereas men's tend to be more aggressive and more about... uh well, yeah, beating up the guys you don't like, but also about, um, in a weird way, still res- earning the respect of others. Kind of. I think, I think um, what, what that's getting at mm-hmm. is sort of the window dressing of it. Okay. That I think at the core, every fantasy is all about I'm the person that can do whatever I want. I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah, and they they tend to paint it differently depending on on who you perceive your audience to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it still amounts to I'm I can do whatever I want. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, because yep. it's 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 the same thing like the 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 male version. Like take like the tough cop story. Mm-hmm. It still amounts to inflicting yourself on those around you. It's just the the trappings are a little different. Like we build up the setting a little different because yes, historically, like guys are cops and like women have kids, so that's why the 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 female version it tends to be like say like a comedy as opposed to an action film, and it looks like like it'll be like say bad teacher mm-hmm. where it's, it's the person just kind of schlubbing their way totally through everything and like making themselves the center of the universe. And it looks that way because we changed the scope, but yeah, like a dirty Harry film is still that exact thing. Mm-hmm. It's still, I do what I want and screw all you guys. 
Okay, yeah, I'd agree with that. It's ultimately, yeah, it's just a fantasy about having control over your life and control over your circumstance and being able to just do things without consequence. Yeah, that, and I think at the core, that's what it is. It's that doing things without consequence. Mm, makes sense. And I think we all have that fantasy sometimes of wanting to be able to do things without consequence that, you know, that's just human nature because we are as humans limited by our society and our upbringing and our um, conditioning as the case may be. And so as an end result, we have that desire to give in sometimes to our more primal side and do things that society does not consider just or moral. Um, at least other people do. I mean, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> well, uh, but... In general, I would say that human beings, we still have our animal side and, but we, and I think that's partly what it is. It's giving into that animal side and desire and everything else. It is. And I think the one aspect of that you missed is that we're also limited by ourselves. I think that's kind of what I meant by the whole conditioning thing. I mean, I think a lot of those limits are what we're taught we can and could and should do. I mean... I mean, you're right. I guess we are almost limited by our uh, our own feelings of um, uh, how can I put this? Our own empathy towards other people, and our own sense of our place in the world and everything. But I still would argue that a lot of that is still coming from outside. It's still imprinted on us as young people. Yeah, but there's there's other aspects of that too that I think kind of play in it. I can think of a heroic and a villainous example. Okay, sure. Because I think part of it is is you're right that um, in some cases empathy can be seen as holding us back. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily entirely societal because humans are gregarious. We have a lot of hardware things True. that pull us into groups. And this is where you get like um, the villain exonerated because the you know a lot of villains you have, it is because you are weak and your emotions hold you back, but because I do not care, I can do anything, blah. Right. And we're also held back by our physical limits because one of the things that puts an end to that power fantasy of I'm going to be the tough guy and beat up everyone in the bar is that I am physically incapable of beating up everybody in the bar. Yeah, yeah, there's that too. And that's where a lot of, you get like the heroic thing. Like that's part of where superheroes come from. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. The, the idea of being greater than human so you can beat up everyone in the bar. That's right. And it's something that happens mm -hmm. that lets you transcend those limits. Right. Because that's kind of how we perceive it. I'm not going to be able to beat up these like 20 bikers. But if I was bitten by a radioactive spider, oh man, I'd show those guys. Right. No, no, no. That makes sense, actually. Yeah. And so almost all of those fantasies tie in, and that's why superheroes are so popular. Yeah, well, it's partly, it definitely. And it's it, it, it goes with the idea that how we feel about the, the villain mm -hmm. vacillates. Because I would say what kind of happens, and this is, we've talked about the idea that we're just living the same 20 years over and over and over. Mm-hmm. If things are good and say the economy's chugging along and people feel secure in their jobs and such, you tend to see the the villain portrayed in a more positive light. Interesting, okay. And when it's the other way, when when things are down, the economy's down, people are nervous, people are scared, you tend to see 
the villain portrayed in a more, I won't necessarily say positive light, but a more accommodating light. Because everyone feels that way? Yeah, because even if, if I'm not going to outright turn to crime, mm-hmm. I can still kind of associate with, um, with like the bad guy. Right. Okay. Makes sense. So that's where you start seeing this idea of like the, the villain doing, doing good. Right. Well, the villain is okay. Well, the villain, I think in North America, we have a weird thing about villains though. Mm -hmm. Um, I this sorry to go with this tangent, but I I think you're right. Okay. Let me, here, let me finish. Let's just finish this thought first that you're going into. Okay. So I think you're right. I think that a lot of how we see villains tends to actually be about how the mood of society is. Um, if the, if the mood of society is that our lives suck, we see the villain as the underdog. Mm-hmm. If we, if we mood of society is that our lives are great, the villain is a threat to that. And therefore they're that, you know, criminal element that we look down upon. Right. That makes perfect sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, and then I think there's another confounding variable, which is depends on the culture the villain is coming from. Like you and I are speaking from North American culture. But keep in mind, old world cultures see villains and the um, uh, organized crime, as we would call them in that case, in very different lights, depending right. on the situation circumstance. Um, so, for example, the say the Japanese or the Italians have a very different view of organized crime than we do, for example. Mm-hmm. Or at least they have a more, or maybe I should say a more accepting view. that They see them as just a normal, natural part of society. They might not like them, but they accept that they're there and they're probably not going anywhere. Right. Whereas we in North America see them as an aberration to be stamped out if, if possible. Although we've quickly realized that that's just not possible and not going to happen. Yeah, kind of. It, 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 again, it's, it's that idea. Mm-hmm. It's that idea, too, of what kind of crime. That's true. Because I'm thinking if you go to like, say the seventies mm-hmm. and the seventies were a downtime and the, the crime was high. Yeah. And this is like the, the era of like films having like roving bands of gangs. Yep. That's true. That just come out and they're totally evil. And this mm-hmm. is where I say, it's not that we're necessarily, they weren't necessarily portrayed sympathetically, mm-hmm. but you had heroes like your dirty Harry's and your anything that Bronson was in. And and even characters like say like Shaft, or or Superfly in that, or mm-hmm. Dolomite even, that they were heroes that would use the tools of the villain, right? So they would be just as brutal, and they would be just as as they'd fight just as dirty. So while we weren't necessarily okaying the the criminals, we were okaying kind of the criminal method. Yes, I would agree with that. And it was painted as such. Like, this is like the era of exploitation film. When you get to the mm-hmm. 80s, it gets kind of cleaned up. And you get this weird effect that the villain becomes more sympathetic. And the techniques of villainy become kind of cleaned up again. Hmm. So the violence, it's it's neat it's perfectly acceptable. There's no psychological effect. There's no like physical effect. Bystanders don't generally get hurt. This is the air of the villain threatening to do things. Right. Well, a lot of that has to do with PG thirteen ratings. It does, but but you kind of you kind of see this attitude go. 
go back and forth. Mm -hmm. The PG-13, yeah, I think is definitely part. But if you go to, say, like the 60s. Right. um, You had villains portrayed in really, really kind of strange ways. Depending on if it's mainstream, there's a catch, though. Remember, in mainstream in the 50s and 60s, they're still operating under the Hays Code. So they're very limited in what they can do. Yeah, there's, there is, but you start seeing things like, um, again, too, tying in with the idea of local attitudes. In the 60s, you had counterculture. Very true. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of things that would be considered criminal or, or, or wrong. And this is where I say, when you talk crime, you're kind of talking villainy. Mm -hmm. That in the 50s were bad. That in the 60s are portrayed in a semi-sympathetic light, if not an outright sympathetic light. Right. Now, is that because the 60s... Now, I again, this is not my area, so you might know more than me. Um, is that because the 60s was kind of an era of, you know, the criminals are products of their environment, and therefore we should feel sorry for them? Like, was that there a lot of that idea running around in the 60s culture? Or was that the 70s that, that they started thinking that? That kind of comes to play... More in the 70s. Because what you had in the 60s was there wasn't a lot of emphasis on crime in in pop culture. And when there was, like I said, it was really weird because the counterculture was seen as these like dangerous radicals and with their crazy ideas like peace and love. What the hell is that? Ah. Mm. And that became... The, the 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 heroes and the villains of the time that became the 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 well I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take it a step back okay if we're gonna talk uh, pop culture we should I want to yeah I want to go back to the fifties and fifties movies okay sure because the fifties are kind of like we've talked before that's where teenagers are invented mm-hmm. And teenagers are weird and frightening to people because it's like the kids that we could ignore until they were adults and became one of us. We're now sort of forming this other weird thing we didn't understand. Yes. And one of the things that came out of the, the, the fifties entertainment industry was a thing that I get more joy out of than I should was the troubled teen film. Uh huh. And I don't know if you've ever had, do you, are you familiar with this genre of film? I'm familiar with it, but I haven't watched many of them, I admit. <laughs> okay. Now they're funny because first off, when you go back like, you know, 70 years and you watch these things, it can be really tough to pick out who the heroes and the villains are for us because they don't look that different. Right. There's very subtle cues, like the length of your ducktail dictates if you're the hero or the villain. Right. And a lot of these films presented, like, 30-year-old teenagers. That's also a problem. Which, if if you've seen one. But they present them in these situations where teen life is a lot more dramatic than it really was. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of fights. And everybody's got, like, a switchblade. And you're drag racing all the time. And... And if, like, you're a really bad kid, you're involved with, like, dope and and you might accidentally murder somebody trying to impress your girlfriend. Like, these are all standard plots. 
Yeah, I'm familiar with them, although I know them mostly from Japanese 70s exploitation films, <laughs> where the Japanese basically, for whatever re- weird reason, pretty much fell in love with the whole 50s gang culture portrayal and did their own version. Yeah, well, we did too. That's that's kind of a, a weird extra effect that comes a little later. Right. Because you're kind of right. Now, the ones that come in the 70s, the troubled teen films, are different. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening is when you get to the 60s, right? those characters that were the quote-unquote bad kids mm-hmm. kind of become the good kids. Or at least they're portrayed a little more sympathetically. Because again, it gets watered down. Right. That the idea of going to somebody's house and playing that rock and roll and having a big party and like trashing the place Mm -hmm. was an act of villainy in the fifties. In the sixties, it becomes good natured hijinks. Right. Because that is your audience. It is. And it's, I think what you're, what you're, you're also kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's that weird handover. Mm -hmm. And it's that weird effect that, the people who are teenagers now grew mm-hmm. up watching all those like, you know, rebel without a clue kind of films. Right. And they thought that was cool. And now they're kind of looking to emulate that, but because they're not actually as like, you know, hard and vicious as the people in these, these other films who, who literally will, will rob a bank just to impress their girlfriend. Um, yeah. Who's not, who's not really their girlfriend. Like this is, it, it becomes, you know, that, well, I'm going to drag race, you know, hot dog Bob because he's like the local gang badass wink right. to impress my girlfriend so she'll go to the prom. But it's it's kind of same that same idea, but it gets transmogrified and watered down for, for the new audience because the ideas that were just disturbing and offensive a decade ago are now mm-hmm. relatively acceptable. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Because... Because that's what you get in the 70s is you get kind of like that comes back because, again, it's the same 20 years again. Mm-hmm. A lot of the themes of the uh, exploitation films actually are familiar from 50s films because uh, a lot of the exploitation guys, they're gangs. Like that's that's mm-hmm. famously anything Bronson was in. The gang is going to come murder your family and rape your dog. Of course, yeah. And what's funny is that's the hardened version of mm-hmm. the troubled teens from the 50s. Ah, uh, okay. I can see that. Because in the 50s, it, it was always a gang. Right. That was, was the antagonist. And, and they weren't going to rape your dog. They just had hair slightly longer than everyone else. And that's what made them the, 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 the villain. But it's that same right, kind right. of sentiment. That you're kind, you're you're vilifying mm-hmm. that that self indulgent outsider, right, right, and you're holding up the uh, the crusading outsider, I guess. Okay, I wonder how much of that came from the whole idea of, um, believe it or not, the Western and the Western outlaw as well, because I mean, we're talking about Americans, right? So. Mm-hmm. This is still the era of people who grew up on Westerns. Yeah. And so I have to wonder how much the Westerns are still having a strong influence on this. Um, oh, I, 
I think you're. I think it's you're 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 right. It, I think it's huge. Hmm. Even if it's indirect, actually. Yeah. Also, I don't think you went back far enough because if we'd gone into the 30s and 40s, you would have seen. Uh, you see characters that are just like Dirty Harry back in the pulp magazines of the 30s and 40s. Well, yeah, you, you won't see them in the movies, but you'll see them in the the original Shadow, uh, the Crim. Was he called the Crimson Avenger? I'm trying to remember what he was yeah. called, but yeah. Was- yeah, all all those guys, you know, all those two fisted uh, two fisted pulp fighters, and that Doc Savage, you know, the mm-hmm. one who would capture criminals and remove the evil parts of their brain. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, you know, those guys are closer to villains than they are heroes. They're just slightly less bad than the bad guys. Well, and and I think again, you're 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 exactly right. In fact, that... I would argue that. And sorry to interrupt. I would argue that what we saw in the seventies, especially the early eighties, and that was part of the whole pulp revival thing, where the generation that grew up on those pulps was emulating them in the popular culture. Mm. And it was basically just exactly the same for our audience to compare to. It's just the same as the kids who grew up on eighties superhero comics are now making Marvel movies and DC movies. Like they've become common yeah. culture, but at that time. They were common culture then in another form, and now they shifted. The same thing was happening then, except it was pulp magazines, and then in the 70s and 80s, they were replicating the pulp heroes, basically, in new forms. In the 70s, it was the more two-fisted form, the Dirty Harry form, the Crimson Avenger, take your pick. In the 80s, they tend to be the slightly more sanitized Indiana Jones form. Uh, that's where you get Knight Rider, you get uh, the A-Team, you get uh, Magnum, all those guys. They're all really just pulp heroes. Yeah, I, th- I, I do think you're right. I think um, because I think the pulp era and I think like the horse opera thing, it is part of that cycle. Mm-hmm. Because when you go back to your oldest, your oldest tales, like the... Uh, the old uh, dime store western novels and that right, right that kind of predate the pulps and sort of lead into them mm-hmm. and are sort of part of them it's it's that idea that you'll get like the crusading lawman or the guy that the 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 local gang killed his family and now he's a vigilante or he's the last member of his like like uh his team of US rangers that gets mm-hmm. nursed back to health and that and then you'll also get the uh, the tales of like the you know the desperado that robs the train and hides out from the law net. And I think again, it, it is that back and forth that that. Oh yeah, and I'm be- definitely. It it goes even way way further back. Yep. My thing is when you get earlier than the 20th century, like for for me, mm-hmm. it's tougher for me to kind of get the timing to that. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Er- eras last a lot longer. Like. Than, than than they do now because you know nobody could read you had to wait for the bard to come to your town this year and tell you the story and well that's a lot before the 20th century that's even like way before um i it, mean people were reading and actively reading well into like the 1700s uh yeah the late 1700s but definitely in the 1800s they were um yeah. they were actively reading i mean remember when dickens was active mm-hmm so, I mean, yeah, we've had a literate society for a long time, but the Industrial Revolution definitely bumped that up in a huge way. Yeah, because the problem with, um, like, when you get to, say, like, 1700s, 1800s, when you finally had a printing press, mm-hmm. 
and you could mass produce books, it was still compared to nowadays, it was slow. And that's why I say the, the periods were longer. Oh yes, definitely. Like a um, giant novel you'd get week by week, like a chapter. So, Oh yeah, but that was for monetary purposes more than anything else. You know, that was your mm-hmm. way of uh, stringing things out. But I, I, I get your yeah. point. I see your point totally. Anyway, but we're suddenly going backwards in time and we're jumping around a lot here. Um, <laughs> but and we're supposed to also, exactly. We're also supposed <laughs> to be focused more on the villains than the heroes. But I guess the point is, is that partly what we would consider a villain at many points in history have has actually been the hero yeah. um and in fact i would argue that that's even more true now <laughs> in an odd way what by what by what i mean is is that um modern villains are characters that traditionally would have been the hero in a lot of old tales it's 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 tough to pig down I'll, uh cuz again it, it's cyclical any example i can think of i can think of a uh an alternating example. Mm-hmm. It's easier to look at characters who should be villains, but we right. think of as heroes. Cause the best example of that would be Batman. Right. He soups in, beats up these guys trying to break in, ties them up. And then what? Like first and then off, you runs away like, and finds more villains. Yeah. You, you've just committed assault. Firstly, mm-hmm. secondly, when the cops show up, is there going to be proof that these guys were committing a crime? Or are they just going to find two unconscious guys tied up in front of a uh, in front of a jewelry store? Well, that's why superheroes don't really work well in real life. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's it's that idea that Batman should be the villain. Like he's not helping, he's making it worse. He can't testify in court, so he can't bear witness to to any any anything he's seen these guys are going to get off scot-free he he's 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 giving the villains their out pretty much yeah that's true i mean the only way he wouldn't be giving the villains their out is if he was actually judge jury and executioner if he was actually going around which mind you batman 1.0 did there is that Mm. um if if Batman was actually going around doing his best Judge Dredd routine with the villains, that would actually be more reasonable because in that sense he would actually be he'd be solving the problem. But you're right, as he is, he's not really solving any problems. I mean, again, it's, unless he's dealing with people who are basically the same as him but worse, like the Joker. Right. In which case, well, he's stopping them from doing worse things, I guess, but they don't really end up in jail properly i mean they end up in arkham which is a revolving door apparently so <laughs> whatever um but you're right i mean properly speaking there are a number of superhero characters but that's where we get back into as we were saying earlier power fantasies right yeah most of the power fantasy characters are characters who technically should be villains but are actually portrayed as heroes because they're beating up on people worse than they are yeah or or even like i'll go back to like the tough guy cop films Mm-hmm. When you, you get like to the, them. no, I don't. I hate them. That's why they're a good example for me. Okay, but when you get to the eighties and you get kind of the watered down versions, mm-hmm. uh, you you get that that idea that no, the hero is the guy who beats up on the designated villain, right? Yeah, because when you get to the seventies, like the darker era, mm-hmm. the villains are villainous. They do things, but we've talked about before. You get to the eighties, where Everybody's fat and happy. Times are good. We're a little willing to sympathize with the 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 villain. Mm-hmm. 
they become a little more cartoony. They don't do things. They threaten to do things. And still meet the same horrible violent death with less blood. No, no, dude. You, you're missing oh. something, though. Okay. Right before they die, they have to say something sexist about women. Well, or, no, they, they, they say other bad stuff, too. Yeah, but usually there's got to be somewhere, somewhere either around the time they're introduced or just before they die, they almost always say something sexist about women. And I don't mean that in some oh, feminist plot. No, that was an old Hollywood trick, like to make the female members of the audience hate them and to make mm. it uh, palatable to watch the villain be killed. Actually, you know what's funny? What? Thinking on it mm-hmm. when it comes to, like, say, film. Yeah. That's a 70s thing. I believe that, yeah. When you get to, like, the 80s, it's the hero that does that. No, pretty much every Arnie villain does that. Yeah, I've, watched, so- I've watched those films. They all do that. They all say, you know, and they'll always be, hey, Chicky, go get me a sandwich. They'll always, always say the villain. Every, every 80s villain says something, you know, degrading about women. Every the- single one. Yeah, they do, but then like every 80s hero also has the semi-competent female sidekick that ends up becoming the love interest for no apparent reason, usually after the hero does something obnoxious to them. Yeah, but the hero isn't sexist towards them usually. The hero is like maybe overtly. Well, he's he's a playful rogue, unlike the villain who is just a sexist asshole. (laughs) I don't know when you say that. He's a playful rogue. I think of Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) Why so? Well, because it was it was presented as that when they they committed a sexual assault, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by by drugging up the hero's girlfriend and having sex with her under false pretenses. But again, oh, I it's, remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and but that and that kind of goes with that idea that what counts as hero and villain sort of changes over time. It, it does. Oh my god! Yeah, if you were to show Revenge of the Nerds to a modern audience. Oh my! Um, yeah, it's, it's actually th- fairly horrifying. <laughs> well, that in Porky's. Yeah, Porky's is pretty bad too. Yeah, if you were to show Porky's to a modern audience, they really would not know what to deal with it. But the thing is, Porky's wasn't nearly as rapey as uh, Revenge of the Nerds was. That is true. You got me there. Revenge of the Nerds, yeah, has the good guys committing date rape. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like, okay, well, that's... And, of course, the women loved it. So, you know, and that's... Okay, all right, sure, guys, whatever. Um, oh, the 80s. <laughs> now, wasn't that running along from Animal House? Because I think Animal House had a bit of that, too. It kind of does, because that's that idea for, like, wacky comedies. Everybody's trying to get some. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think Animal House was nearly as bad like revenge of the nerds kind of reached a because it was that idea you're always sort of pushing that idea yeah well keep in mind that these films were mostly being made by a bunch of coked out drunks yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh the 80s (laughs) yeah the early 80s i mean you know john belushi and uh yeah i hear all these guys you know all the new york sour night live crew they were you know they were snorting and drinking and doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes before they went on stage. It was pretty messed up. Well, and that, that continued because it, it's the same idea, I think, with like the the, the wacky hijinks comedies like that hmm. as the axe murder films. Because if you watch Animal House, there is a structure to it. Mm-hmm. It does have a story. It does have a plot. Mm-hmm. 
it it's 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 kind of um similar to like American graffiti, which again has a definite storyline and like definite themes that go through it. Mm-hmm. When you get to kind of like the mid eighties, the Animal House template has just kind of been uh this guy's like a weenie and he's trying to get some uh to have at least three shower scenes we need more boobs put in like a rock like the whole ecology mm-hmm. behind that storyline has now completely disappeared in the face of of just you know rampant like uh, uh titillation yeah yeah pretty much well they discovered tit cell surprise well they um, discovered a, but but it's it's that idea that that you don't really need a context to it you just mm. need something that kind of looks like this is how the plot usually works and if it kind of looks like that people give it a pass yeah pretty much yep yep i i should remind our audience that this is the 80s so porn was only something you could watch on video cassette you didn't you couldn't just go on google and search for it yeah there so those no, we had cable you for those of us who had parents willing to pay for it yes yeah um, but not every parent was – in fact, I would argue most parents were not willing to pay for it. That's why we had that – remember, we, we've talked about that before, you know, the uh, the the all the young guys sitting around staring at the scrambled cable signal. It's like, oh, oh, there's a boob. I think I see a boob. Um, yeah, cable that, that was, was like that was the, super expensive. Yeah, exactly. That was the cable experience for uh, a great many young men during the 1980s. Um, and so, or maybe late night television, if you were lucky, you managed to see something. If you're in Canada, if you're in Ontario, you could watch city TV, um, and then you could see your boobs for free. Uh, but if you were lucky and they were showing the right kind of movie anyway. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is that it was, it was a bigger attraction back then. So just having movies that actually were basically softcore porn sold a lot. Yeah, and, and you found ways to kind of sneak that in. That was where, like, the wacky hijinks comedy became, like, like the vehicle for, for that. Exactly. They discovered that worked, and it sold, and people were willing to, you know, watch it, and or eventually maybe watch it in video cassette too. And once that came around and got popular, and so, yeah, it all worked out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right, so let's continue. So I think we're... we're We've kind of gone from text into film, and now we're kind of meandering around in the film territory. Why don't we move to some of the other mediums you mentioned? Um, so what's another medium that uh, where villainy works a little bit differently? Okay, you're kind of... Um, you're kind of... Uh, we, we went to, to movies, and you're, you're starting to touch on, like, television. Right. Okay, we can do that. Because movies and television work kind of similar, especially when you get to that that idea of um what's mm-hmm. presented as villainy right because i think to when you get to the 60s kind of going into the 70s the countercultures is portrayed in a more positive light establishment tends to get poo-pooed mm-hmm. like the best example i can think of is the uh 60s dragnet right like i don't know if you ever seen like the 1960s like, cause, cause it was, there was, it was older. It was, I think there was a, a like a fifties version. Dragnet was original on the radio. Yeah. It was transferred from the radio onto TV. Yeah. And I think there was a fifties one. Cause I think I've, I remember seeing it in black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it transferred from the radio of the forties. I think it was to the television of the fifties. Cause that, they, that happened with a lot of popular shows. Yeah. And then eventually I don't know if it was a continuing line or where the, or they re- remade it for the 60s or what the deal was. I actually don't know the full story. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not sure either, but I know it takes this turn where, like, say, the black and white ones Mm -hmm. are a serious cop show. When you get to the 60s, it's hard to tell if they're trying to be camp Mm -hmm. or if they're writing so hard for, like, a geezer audience that it's becoming camp. I'd probably bet it's the latter. Yeah, it's, it's especially because, like, their portrayal of, like, hippies and drug users and that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely, like, bizarre. Right, of course it is, yeah. Well, again, they're taking their cues from what, what they know of young people, which is, of course, those, you know, teen movies that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, and and it's that idea that everything's gone, gone you know, hippie, as the the ad execs might say Mm -hmm. and you're trying not to alienate that audience but if i'm trying to do something that's firmly on the side of the man it's really hard to and then Mm -hmm. that's 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 where you see different things vilified where like the cocky rebel Mm -hmm. becomes the hero and the dedicated you know enforcers of 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 justice are like just part of the conformity machine man and mm-hmm. you, you start seeing that, and then when you get to like say cop shows of the seventies, mm-hmm. there and and again like a lot of movies and that, you're seeing this darker, grittier thing. And this is where I can't think of the right term, but you're not exactly seeing crime being portrayed in a positive light necessarily, but you're you're seeing it being more of a necessity. Crime is a necessity. How so? Well, you get things like we've said, like, say, your Dirty Harry's. Mm-hmm. That he's willing to use, like, extreme, okay. super legal violence. But you're also seeing stuff. Right. Uh, there's a lot of TV shows where, and again, sometimes it feels like camp, but I'm mm-hmm. not sure if it was. Where you get, like, say, Starsky and Hutch. Right. Their buddy is a, a pimp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Huggy Bear. Yeah, Huggy Bear is an actual, honest to god criminal pimp. Oh yeah, but but he's a necessary part because the idea is you can't be a cop and just be totally law and order. You got to get your hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of shows like 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 the Streets of San Francisco. You've got like more than a touch of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you see like the tensions ramped up on stuff. Like if you look at say, um, the rookies or or the original SWAT. Mm-hmm. there's just a lot of guys being stressed out by the job, which you didn't see prior, like, because cops were super noble, clean, and their uniform never got dirty. Right. It's that, it's that idea that there is this kind of seamier side, that it takes a toll, that it changes you, that you go down this dark road. The only cop show I can think of that really didn't, well, there's two, was uh, Yo-Yo and Holmes and Adam-12. I was going to say Adam-12. Because, yeah, I yeah. grew up watching Adam-12 reruns. I remember that. It's squeaky clean. Um, it's still very old school, the noble yeah. defenders of justice. And uh, you're also forgetting uh, Chips would be like that later on, too. Although, you know, again, a little more humorous. Yeah. And um, uh, and T.J. Hooker. Yeah, but again, these are the ones where it gets cleaned up. That's why I mentioned like Yo-Yo and Holmes, which nobody mentions, which was a comedy about this guy who gets like a RoboCop sidekick. But did that even get past pilot stage? Yeah, I, I believe there was like a season, just nobody cared. 
Okay. But, but I mean, there were plenty of noble cop series in the 70s and the 80s, there, definitely. There were, but like I said, it was that idea of getting your hands dirty. And then the pinnacle mm-hmm. of that in the early 80s became Hill Street Blues. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Where, and so that was the almost compromise where a quote-unquote realistic cop show. Yeah, and, and what made it realistic was that idea that a lot of times the line between cop and crook was was thin. Mm, true. And and in that same era, because there's always a response, you also get the return of like that cleaned up version. Because when you talk about like, say, TJ Hooker or Chips, mm-hmm. like they were... In, in a lot of cases, almost just one step away from sitcom. Like, they were pretty, pretty wholesome and... and oh, yeah. And almost... All, I'm going to say almost square, because they, they, they both did have episodes that weren't bad. Like oh, I, I didn't know. One. Chips had lots of bad episodes. <laughs> they they kind of did. Chips had this weird thing, because I remember watching reruns of it when I was in university. Mm-hmm. The first season, for for what it was, wasn't bad. The stories weren't bad, but they felt the need to throw in, like, a 28-car pileup every episode. Right. And even if it really didn't have anything to do with anything, and even if it stopped the actual plot, there's going to be a 28-car pileup. Right. Yeah, they always had to have some car accident event happen. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like, whether... It made sense or not. And that kind of detracts from it. But if you got around that, they weren't the first seasons, at least. It wasn't bad. I mean, yeah. Yep, yep. You're right. Yep, you're right. Um, (sighs) (laughs) Yeah, Chips. I mean, I think it became campier later on as it went on. And then they started, like, having guest appearances. Because once it got popular, you know, they started hanging out with Elvira. I vaguely remember from when I was a kid. Yeah. I think she was on once or twice. And they would start having all these, you know, guest stars pop in in one form or another that would were there. I think the, you know, they're supposed to be the California Highway Patrol. So that's why they had to have the pileup, just to get them on the highway for some highway thing to happen. Yeah. That, that I think <laughs> that's the thing and then eventually they kind of just gave that up i think in the, after the first season and basically it's like yeah okay it's basically going to be a sitcom set in their station where they go out sometimes yeah and that's kind of how it played out tj hooker if i remember it was a little more of a serious uh, i will definitely say square cop show it, it was definitely it was in more of the adam 12 mode maybe a little softer though adam 12 could still actually have a bit of an edge to it where he tj hooker definitely was not meant to have an edge to it it was for what we would later call the matlock crowd yeah yeah it was it was one of those things it was hard to tell if it was in trying to be camp or just achieved it through happy coincidence <laughs> well keep in mind that it just had the tone that a lot of tv had during that era like a lot yeah. of stuff from the early and mid 80s and even some of the late 80s is very very um gentle it's almost the word i'd describe it and that's and when i say that gentle is not ah, gentle is not quite the right word it's a little bit campy it's a little bit fun like there's an era of there's an edge of fun to it all um, yeah and especially the popular stuff like and i mean all of it like night rider a team uh, the fall guy for example yeah. The 70s stuff has a little more of an edge to it, whereas the 80s stuff is much softer. Like, it's much yeah. neater, more clean, more sanitized. Yeah, I'd, I'd say low impact. Yeah, okay, low impact works too. Yeah. Because that was the thing, and that ties in with what we were saying. Like, 
the seventies, everybody was feeling like all agitated. So things tended to be darker. Right. Yep. Whereas everybody was upbeat in the eighties for a little while anyway. So everything tended to be, even if you were doing something dark and heavy, it really wasn't. You know, I was watching some uh, $6 million man uh, clips and episodes recently. Um, Uh And it's interesting how actually gripping some of them actually are. Some of them are actually kind of suspenseful. Right. Um, They could be suspenseful. It could be playful. But there's definitely a real emotion to some of them. Some of them really can't be too. But there's, there's that. But they're actually trying to really generate real emotion in the audience. Whereas I would argue that by the time we get to a lot of the 80s stuff... They're not really trying anymore. They're just kind of going through the motions. Yeah, there's. I think what ends up happening with that was when you get to the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's kind of perfected all the formulas. Yeah, it's all just formula. I yeah, would agree. And, th- and not just formula, but specific form. So if I'm doing a comedy, this is how a comedy works. Mm-hmm. And you lose a little bit of the... Um, when I do the serious episode, how serious it can be. Mm-hmm. When I you get to like your action stuff, here's how action stuff works. Because yeah, I find like in the '90s and that your 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 like crazy action things get really really predictable. Oh yeah, yeah they do. And I think it's because that's a for where something like the Six Million Dollar Man that was an action show. Mm-hmm. Would do comedy episodes, and they would do crazy stuff, and they would yep. throw in like Alien Bigfoot shows up. Okay, sure, why not? Exactly. Um, I was watching that just the other day, and that's actually it's <laughs> it's weird and it's campy, but you know, actually, when he first shows up, it's actually kind of suspenseful and creepy. Because mm-hmm. when he first shows up, the the aliens that are controlling him are only shown in shadow. Which is a trick I noticed that you very rarely see anymore in stuff. Yeah. Like they, back then you they're talking, but all you can see is their silhouettes. And like, it's clear that there's, it, it, it's one of those stories where kids a two-parter when Bigfoot shows up, if I remember right. It, mm-hmm. And actually the aliens have this thing, they can teleport around anywhere. They're actually quite intimidating, in fact. Because they can, they can basically teleport anywhere and do whatever, do pretty much whatever they want. Yeah. And Bigfoot's just their guardian. And so... It's just kind of weird and confusing at first, and then the aliens get kind of terrifying, and then they get kind of campy. <laughs> right. it's, kind of, it's kind of a cycle that they go through as you're watching the episode. It's like, whoa, and it's like, oh, and then it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once when it's Sandy Duncan is just not that intimidating as an evil alien uh, overlord. <laughs> she really isn't. <laughs> oh my god, and John Saxon. <laughs> If I remember right, John Saxon is the leader of the of the aliens. It's like okay, well, he's the villain in everything in the seventies, so that's kind of okay, yeah. I guess. Yeah, he's kind of scary, but yeah, I'm not really afraid of Sandy Duncan. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if it's Sandy Duncan or just some woman who looked like her, but yeah. Anyway, but the point is, is that if you see the episode, you'll know who I mean if you know who Sandy Duncan is. But it's just like, yeah, okay, all right, okay, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> Actually, I was watching, I'm going to do a total tangent, but I was watching this interview with uh, Lee Majors, and he was talking about that, because the guy who plays the evil giant Bigfoot in the first time he appears is Andre the Giant. Yeah. Okay? And so it's Andre the Giant under all that makeup, so he was, so Lee Majors was telling stories about dealing with Andre the Giant, and apparently there's a scene where in the, I think it's the first time he meets Bigfoot, where Andre is basically, has to carry him down this tunnel. 
And it's the tunnel that's this light tunnel where there's rotating tube all around it. And then there's this path down the middle and you have to walk down it. And so if you see it, it's actually apparently part of the, or was part of the, uh, oh, tour ride or something like that. Or tour experience at Universal Studios or something like that back in the day. Uh-huh. It's this it's this light tunnel thing. But the problem is because the way it's rotating with the lights, it naturally causes you to kind of veer off course. And, and so... And normally there's like a uh, – uh, normally there's a fence on either side to prevent you from accidentally going over off the path and falling into the tube where you right. get crushed or whatever, okay? But because that was a uh, – that would look bad for the part of this alien base, they took away the guide rails. <laughs> so Andre the Giant is carrying poor Lee Majors down this tube and Lee is freaking out because he's like – because Andre is slowly listing to the one side, <laughs> and he's pretty sure that if Andre goes over this edge, he's just dead. Like, he's just literally going to get crushed. He's, he'll, it'll basically be like him in this tube spinning around with Andre, like a, it's like being with a boulder. He's just going to get crushed and killed. Mm. And, of course, he's been watching Andre, like, throw back, um, you know, 24 packs of beer to this. <laughs> And Andre's like, oh, no worry, it'll be okay. It's like, oh my god. And so <laughs> that episode was apparently more terrifying for him than anyone else. <laughs> um, by the way, he did actually success. Andre did successfully make it to the other end without crushing and before um, Lee Majors. But right. apparently that episode was quite, yeah, it was terrifying for him. Um, sorry, <laughs> I'm getting off track. But, um, well, well, I guess we are talking about villains. So, yeah, okay, I guess that kind of works. We're talking about villainy. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the best, like, obituary ever? Crushed to death in a giant glowing tube by a, a, a giant uh, Frenchman in a, or Belgian, whichever he was, in a Bigfoot costume while making a TV show. I'd love to see the report. Well, I, I know it's horrible to say, but Lee Majors was killed today. When a giant man in a hair, when a giant man in a fur suit fell on him and squished him against like a roller coaster ride. Oh my god! Do we have footage? We don't. That is such a tragedy. But... Well, the problem is they did have footage, right? They got a dozen cameras filming this thing. <laughs> we would actually have footage. That's the scary part. Oh, oh my yeah. god! And they'd uh, they'd show it. Oh, it would eventually leak somewhere. It would end up being part of one of those uh, Thousand Faces of Death or something like that <laughs> compilations that they used to do back in the day. Or they might have released it to the to the news. We're going to watch this again in slow motion. Exactly. I believe, I believe the look on Mr. Major's face sums it up for the rest of us watching at home. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yep. You'll notice oh. he, he doesn't seem as much frightened as dejected at the realization of... <laughs> How he's going to meet his end. <laughs> okay. Well, we're getting way too much enjoyment out of this idea. So, poor oh. me majors. Um, sorry, Lee, if you're listening, we apologize. Um, so, 80s villains did tend to be kind of low impact like everything else in the 80s. Because it was all formula by that point, And it got yeah. worse in the 90s. Then we had um, 9-11. And mm. I would say 9-11 changed villainy a little bit. Well, yeah, because everybody got a taste of um, if Lex Luthor was real, what life would be like. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. So it was no longer a, a fun fantasy. It was, holy shit, real people are actually going to die. Yeah. 
And so suddenly villains become villains again, and we have a real hard edge to them, I've noticed, after that point. Or sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, terrorists suddenly become super monsters that uh, if we let them out of Guantanamo Bay, they'll wreak havoc upon the world. Yeah. Um, So there's that. Actually, yeah, that's one thing I noticed. I mean, prior to... Actually, let's talk about different... Let's talk about 90s and uh, 2000s villains for a sec here in more detail. Somewhere in the 90s, um, the serial killer turns into a super being and suddenly becomes the dominant villain of everything. And I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure where why that happened exactly, although I'm guessing the answer is Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Every serial killer is now a supervillain. And every series suddenly has serial killer supervillains running around in it who are super devious and super smart and can only be stopped by our hero through the great effort of will or mm. luck, as the case may be. And that's something that pissed me off, actually, because A, because not our serial killers are that smart, and B, they are not superhuman, not for the most part anyway. There are a few that are really whacked out, but they're not superhuman. And, but that became the standard portrayal. You were either a regular criminal or you were a serial killer who was on another tier above everyone else. And I would argue that still continues to this day. I think I've mentioned that in other episodes because that bugs the hell out of me. Right. The deification of serial killers. Right. So suddenly serial killers are the top tier supervillain in everything since the 1990s. Mm. And then in the 2000s, suddenly terrorists become these top tier villains who are behind everything and are lurking everywhere. And I mean, there were terrorists back in the 90s too, but they actually become effective in the 2000s because of course 9-11. Yeah, because I think what what you're also looking at again is um the 70s and the 80s because mm-hmm. the 90s were the 70s and the 70s he had the origin of the slasher flick that's true and i think what ended up happening was it, it's definitely hannibal lecter from silence of the lambs that they're all modeling these characters after definitely and it gets out of hand but because the serial killer becomes like the uh the the slasher flick uh villain Right, yeah, true. Because it's, it's you know, the Jason Voorhees, but there's a little more backstory. Mm-hmm. Because Silence of the Lambs was the thing that showed, no, we can, like, make the villain the interesting part. Right. And we can put all of the drama and suspense and wit and that on the villain. And then that's what happens. And then mm-hmm. it, 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 it grows. Because Hannibal Lecter himself had different like superpowers like, besides eating people well no because he could he, he was like a, a master con man and could yeah, talk yeah anyone any and he could like you know he faked his own death and he was like you know apparently like super strong to overpower guards and blah blah but it was still he didn't seem totally unnatural mm-hmm. he was like a dude who was just super awesome at this stuff Right. And as things go on and as you work on that and as as you try to come up with a new permutation, you get that like level creep mm-hmm. to the uh, point that, yeah, eventually you get like serial killers that are like dodging bullets and surviving explosions and stuff, which is what the, the slasher flick guys did. Pretty much. I, I see your point, actually. In a lot of ways, what happened is Hannibal Lecter basically showed them a way to have slasher flick guys who were basically quote-unquote realistic 
Yep, realistic. And if you remember, Silence of the Lambs got a lot of critical acclaim. Oh, hell yeah. It was a super popular film. Everyone watched it. But not just that, but critics said, this is a, a very good film. This is well done. It's an intellectual. It's about... So it let you have, like, highbrow slasher flicks. Mm, true. And that was why every, every like, like... It was Jason Voorhees, but he had a complicated plan you had to decipher, and he had, like, a big, long backstory and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was now intellectual, which makes it okay again. Right. No, that makes sense. No, I, I'd agree with that. And then then when you get to the 2000s, terrorists become a thing mm-hmm. because it's on everyone's mind, but that was the 80s. Because if you remember 80s, you were always fighting, like, terrorists who were probably ninjas too <laughs> and again it was because this was like the the peak cold war and it was yeah. again something it was on people's minds but you had that kind of safe cognitive dissonance so you got the not dissonance distance uh so you got the the weird like they say cartoony kind of version of it yes yeah you did um, I think the distance part you're talking about is, remember, there were, was a lot of terrorism in the 1970s, but yeah. most of it had cooled down by the 1980s. So everyone knew about it, but it was still something that was a little bit distant and they're a little more safe. Yeah, and, and the terrorism of the 70s was basically them crazy lefty-leaning hippie types. Yeah, most of it was, that's true. That it, it, it wasn't like the uh, crazy right-wing religious uber patriotic types that the 90s were and that was why like the russians were the villains for everything well so, we did have the cold war going on so you know well, war by was. proxy and it was and that's why like you had your your villains and your criminals and and your like like drug dealers that always ended up being either ninjas or part of a russian plot right that's true and then that was why in two thousand in the two thousands you had that idea come back, but they were always ultimately uh, swarthy gentlemen with these unusual head wraps that lived in a cave in the desert kind of thing, and that and that was because it, it goes to that idea like we started mm-hmm. when you come up with your villain, you tend to do something that's really blatant, mm-hmm. and then whatever it is you don't like. You read that into the villain and you tie it all in. Right, yeah. So, and and that's why, like, say in the 70s, um, when you get the villains, the villains were always, like, like um, drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And they had, if they were, like, the, the white-collar drug dealer kind of guy, they always had, like, a street gang that was their minions because these were the things that people were afraid of. Right, yeah, yeah. You, you get to the 80s, it works a little different that they're always like, you know, like Russian terrorists. And when you get to a certain point in the 80s, you notice the villain is always like some rich asshole in a suit. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because because after the uh, after the economy tanked in the 80s, people were less than pleased with the finance industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, that's true. And you, you'd, you'd see that. That comes up, uh, I think that's sort of a through line through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Because '90s were like the '70s again, and and big business and that were seen as like it's the man, man. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of the 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 villains and the things that we consider evil are 
you know, like rampant materialism and, and corporatism and that becomes the villain. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You get conspiracies, you get like shadow governments, you get like a uh, big business doing naughty things. And I think again, it was the economy's down. Mm-hmm. People don't have money. They're resentful. You know, they blame like the, the, the top guys for taking away all the jobs and stuff. And, mm. and then it becomes that thing that your dominant villain. Mm hmm is everything that you think your audience doesn't like and you just sort of mix it all up and then it kind of, it gets caught in that big bundle. Mm -hmm. Your audience sees this, your audience takes that in as, oh, that's what the villain is. And then it kind of, the problem proliferates. Not necessarily problem, but the idea proliferates. The idea proliferates that that is a villain and it just, so it's an echo chamber basically. Yeah. Um, I can think of two really good examples about that. Okay. One of them, and and they're both movies, and it's kind of funny. One of them was uh, The Godfather. Okay. Oh, yes, I know what you mean. Continue. That what ended up happening is the uh, when they're making The Godfather, mm-hmm. um, some honest businessman types were concerned about what would be in it and um, offered their services to sort of act as advisors for the film, we'll say. Right, yes, of course. And the film comes out how it portrayed or the like uh, organized crime. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not necessarily sympathetic. There were definitely like a lot of bad people, but the idea was it was this one guy who got caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it was that idea of crime is evil and vile, but also that the hero had to get his hands dirty. Yes. Yes, he did. And the film was super popular and. What they found was a lot of different organized crime groups started acting like the family in The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, I know. They basically saw these, you know, romanticized honorable mobsters acting like that and thought, oh, that's what we should be acting like. And so they started acting like that. Yeah, and it happened again in Mm -hmm. the 80s because when Scarface came out... Mm -hmm. I was reading like a report by, uh, by I think it was an FBI guy, that he said that movie came out and overnight all of like the, the like the cartel kingpins became Scarface. Right. Like they were generally like kind of low key because you didn't want to attract a lot of attention to yourself if you're like a crime boss. Mm-hmm. And they would have this kind of uh, like faux, like established wealth kind of feel to their mansions and stuff. But after that, they'd break into these places and they all had like a fucking shark tank and a machine (laughs) gun under, under the desk and a leopard wandering around. And, and the, the, the violence level for their, their wars just went off the map. And they say they blame the movie Scarface because it's like, they all said, that's a cool thing. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. That's how we should be doing it. Oh, and so mm-hmm. there we go. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So you get that weird reciprocity from entertainment. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do. And so, it, it, and it goes around. And I'm sure that that happens all over the place. I'm sure that happens in Japan, for example, with the the yakuza who are very old. But I, I have little doubts that the how can I put this? The more honorable side of the Yakuza, which there actually is to some degree, um, mm-hmm. mostly comes from the romanticization of them. 
Like the the modern yeah. yakuza, probably they grew up on these ideas of the yakuza as the you know the we'll call it the noble gangsters, so to speak. And so, oddly enough, I think they try to act like that, even though it really doesn't make any sense. But they do it anyway because, well, that's how gangsters are supposed to be. Yeah, Japan is weird because uh, when it comes to 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 crime in Japan, they have so much less of it than we do, mm. and a lot of it gets organized and weird i would argue they actually have there's a catch to it they actually have a lot of crime but Mm -hmm. it's different crime than ours is yeah because that's that's uh, when you when you say that because i'm thinking about things like uh what was it the uh bakusuzoku like the uh the go gangs yeah the go gangs yeah yeah where you'd get together and just drive really fast and break (laughs) traffic laws and stuff Right. Well, to them, that is breaking the law. That is still crime. Oh, it is here too. But again, it's it's that idea, like you were saying, this whole culture grew up around it. Because I remember like in the 80s, there were tons of comics about that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. But again, I mean, how realistic. This is one of those weird things where all those Japanese like comics about gangsters and such, I have to wonder how much they influenced the actual gangsters that grew up reading them. Mm Mm-hmm. And made them think, oh, this is how we're supposed to behave. Yeah, well, I, I have no doubt that, again, it's 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 reciprocal. Yeah. That what'll happen, like, say, with the uh, the Go Gangs, mm-hmm. a bunch of, like, enthusiasts just, like, driving too fast, laws be damned. Mm-hmm. That kind of gets into pop culture, becomes a, a, a genre. Mm-hmm. Other people like, oh, man, I want to drive too fast, too. It becomes a phenomenon. And then... It kind of peaks and then it sort of burns out because it's part of that reciprocity for certain things like that is people get into it because they think it's cool. And then when they either get bored of it or it gets way too scary for them, they mm-hmm. kind of come out and then it, it, it kind of kind of retracts. Right. Yeah. I, I think when you, when you get waves of stuff, right? Yeah. There'll be waves move through society and there'll be waves that um, people being fascinated by something and then eventually it will fade away. Yeah. Cause again, Japan is weird for, for trends like that. Cause a lot of, um, a lot of it harkens back kind of like the troubled teen films we had here. Mm-hmm. That if I grow my pompadour half an inch longer, now I'm just shocking and disturbing. Japan kind of still works like that. Cause they have weird counterculture. Oh my God. Keep it away from the children's stuff. Like the one I'm thinking of, uh, which I think is fairly recent, is Yankee. Okay. Yankee is so weird. Why is Yankee so weird? Well, you know what it is. The movement of them dyeing their hair yellow and um, kind of being pseudo-gangsters? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like, it's... it's it's I, I know it's been, for a couple of years, it's been the latest fad to offend dad kind of thing. It's hard to explain because essentially... What they're doing, like, fashion-wise and behavior, Mm -hmm. they're kind of trying to emulate obnoxious Westerners. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they've come to the realization that they can't be as cool as, you know, American black people. So they're like, well, I mean, we can dye our hair yellow, and that looks kind of cool. It's like, okay, let's do that. And so that's, that's kind of what they're doing, yeah. Yeah, and it and it's kind of if you watch like those troubled teen films, they're kind of doing that where mm-hmm. 
you're wearing clothes that are slightly not the right fashion and and you're wearing them a little a little bit dishevedly mm-hmm yep and you're dying i don't think they're trying to dye their hair exactly yellow it just kind of comes out that way yeah yeah um you're you're being like more boisterous and outspoken in public and you're traveling mm-hmm. around in like a group and and you're you're listening to music that's kind of questionable and yeah it's just this weird bizarre i wouldn't say of... so it's just it's just another take on the the whole the cycle you're talking about of the gang guys i mean they're no different than the skabon gang guys back in like the 1970s well except that they're not really professing to be like gangs or anything they're basically just kind of loud but that's what passes as questionable antisocial behavior in japan they're not really criminals they're just trying to look cool to get girls i mean that's usually how it works or guys because there's a lot of girls that do it too oh yeah they're yankee girls they're a little different they are a little Mm -hmm. bit different but yes yeah there's the idea there too yeah the girls tend to dress in um Oh, they have weird fashion, and then they have outrageous makeup that they put on as well. They the the girls tend to go for like this weird extreme makeup. You'd have to I'd have to show you pictures to understand, but it's yeah they they kind of the, the girls almost look like like uh, like fans of the rock band Kiss from back in the nineteen seventies. Some of them they're just yeah. really bizarre. They just wear, wear this really bizarre clown like makeup. Yeah, some of them do because there's another movement too where you. Where you paint your face up like a tanuki. Yeah. That yeah. women were doing that. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. Keep in mind that what we're talking about is movements from about 10 years ago. I think they've actually kind yeah. of moved on from that more or less now. I think some of it still goes on. It's Japan. Things linger. But um, yeah. I don't know what the current trend exactly is now. But that was about 10 years ago. Yeah, that was pretty popular, give or take. In the mm. last 10 years anyway. Um, cause I still see it in their media. I can still see them here and there. Although you'd yeah. be surprised, like that's still kind of like fringe stuff. That's, right. you still don't see it. Like when I was in Japan, like a year or two back in the, and wandering around Tokyo and that, I didn't really see any of that. I mean, yeah. I saw a little bit of, uh, the Lolita stuff. No, uh, the Lolita Goth stuff. Let me be precise yeah. there. It's the Lolita Goth stuff, not the you know young girl stuff. I'm talking about you know women in their twenties or whatever dressing in like weird frilly black crap and stuff. I saw yeah. that dressing uh, like uh, Wednesday Adams going exactly. to prom. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, the ones dressing like Wednesday Adams. I think I might have seen a little bit of the women in like the clown makeup type thing, but that's right. about it. Like it's pretty. It's still pretty rare. Like that's just this weird small subculture of youth that dress like that or act like that but remember that manga especially and japanese culture in general is uh, exaggerating a lot of that stuff like yeah. a lot of the stuff you're seeing there is they're taking things that are relatively small in japanese society and exaggerating the hell out of them because it's kind of cool and interesting yeah well it's any any kind of like pop culture does that like it's yeah, it's uh it, it's partly inspirational it's partly aspirational and you could argue again, as you just said, that any does that. So even the troubled teen films of the 60s are doing that. 
Yeah. There's still, you know, the number of real troubled teens in the 60s was probably not really that high. They were living no. in a great time of economic prosperity for the most part. Jobs were plentiful. Yeah, they had dads that might have had PTSD from World War II, but overall their lives weren't that bad. They lived in a house yeah. in the suburbs. Things were generally going okay for most of them. Not all, but most. Yeah, and and, and that's the idea of, of um, when you're – why you never take pop culture as your source of news – Yes. Because you're always pushing things because you can't put an idea Mm -hmm. in people's heads, but you play with what's already there. Yeah. And that's why, like I say, the, the, oh, was it Teenage Crime Wave is is my Mm go-to for that. Okay. That starts with, uh, with, with that blurb that's, that's uh, essentially, um, you know. The Department of Justice reports that teen crime is up 4 billion percent and every one of you, the likelihood of being murdered by a teenager is 110 percent. So you're probably dead by the time you're watching this and we have to stamp (laughs) out teenagers. Ah! And it's it's that same speech that I've been seeing you see every decade because it's always about, you know, what the kids are into because they make you feel Mm -hmm. old because you don't get it. Yeah. And... All these these movies played this thing up that that right. Um, there's another one. I uh, was I accuse my parents. Mm-hmm. See the mystery science theater version if you can, not the regular right. one. Okay, and there, of course. There's a big a big thing at the end of that when like the teenagers before that thirty year old teenagers before the judge and the judge is saying, and the problem is like the parents are bad and we don't have enough going to church and that's why society's out of control and this is like the 50s that everybody now looks back as the most idyllic time ever right and according to the people who who were there during that time it was just this horrible crime riddled oh my god the, we we all have to get like body armor and machine guns or or the kids are going to listen to that rock and roll and murder us in our sleep and 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 it's 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 again it's that cycle, and that's why it gets so hard to pick out what's really going on. Actually, if I recall right, according to crime statistics, the fifties were, were actually crime ridden. There was actually horrific numbers of murders and shit happening during the nineteen fifties and sixties. It it depends on how you look at it too, because remember, some stuff that was a crime uh, now wasn't really then, right? That's true, but. It's if you look at crime statistics, I remember this. It's uh, the Freakonomics talks about that, where the crime statistics basically are, are horrifically bad for until pretty much you get it well into the seventies um, mm-hmm. and or seventies or eighties, where they start uh, unleaded gasoline and abortion. They think were the two of the things that yeah. that um, really affected things. But prior to that, yeah, there was so much lead in the air that everyone was half. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, everyone was kind of being um, affected by it. And so they think that that was making people more prone to violence and such. Yeah, there was that. And there was also the idea that when you look back at the 50s, mm-hmm. we tend to only look at sort of the uh, the middle class part of it. Right. That's true. Well, that we're looking you... at it through a media lens, remember? Yeah. And, and that was something that you didn't. So if you're looking at, say, like the... Uh like uh below middle class mm-hmm. there was some problems if you go to like the actual poor parts of town or remember there was still a lot of segregation at that time there was a lot of crime that happened there mm-hmm. yeah definitely oftentimes people coming from the middle class part of town just to stir up some shit because they're bored but 
remember too when you talk about things like that this mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why I, I don't think the 50s was exactly the idyllic time people like to pretend it was. There were a lot of of of, of crimes that, yeah, would be downplayed or weren't considered serious. Because you talk about, say, homicides. Mm-hmm. Um, this was kind of still the area of, I was drunk. Okay, probation for you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that works. Yeah. You know, so, how come you were beating your wife? Well, she didn't have my dinner ready, huh? Do you want us to help? You know, when the cops showed up kind of thing. Like, there was a lot of shit like that, eh? <laughs> that, that's pretty awful. Okay. Because um, that's... Yeah, that, oh, that's one of the problems when you get to, like, real life. And again, I guess it ties in with the Julius Caesar thing. Right. People don't realize that when we look at actual facts, the nature of reporting and cataloging facts changes over time as well. That's true. Because this is one of the ties, ties in one of the reasons why, um, if you watch the news, Florida has got to be the most batshit insane place on earth. Mm-hmm. But Florida also makes like basically all of their, their, their crime files public. Mm-hmm. And there's a suspicion that it's not that people are crazier in Florida. It's just that it's. The, you the, you it, can actually see it. Yeah, that that it you have access to the to the actual police reports and that, so you can see the madness. Whereas everywhere else, you don't get those kind of like filings, so you don't see all the shit that goes on behind the scenes. That makes a huge amount of sense. Because I think about that, like living in Windsor, which, like I say, is cyberpunk times. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of crime that doesn't get talked about. I think it happens everywhere. Yeah, it's it's pretty routine. And people will see that. They'll see, like, say, the murder stats for the year. And they're like, there's a lot of them. And I don't remember hearing about, like, like a tenth of these. And it's because they just don't get a lot of attention. They don't get big reports because that's just what happens, right? <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah, of course. That's totally just what happens. Mm. But in other places, that would be a bigger deal. And because of that attention, it looks different. Right. And then, like you just said, if you're looking through it, that gets even further filtered when that works its way into entertainment, so that you're, mm-hmm. you're getting kind of the rotten cherry pick picking of the of the what's going on in in the zeitgeist. Yeah, huh? I might be completely wrong. Um, oh. well, because I I found some um. I found some material. I, for some reason, I can only seem to find violent crime stats to go back to the 1960s. It right. looks like it's hard to find stuff from before then. I'm not quite sure why. They might Maybe they didn't keep track of it or whatever. But if you look at uh, U.S. violent crime stats based on the FBI, okay, uh-huh. then actually violent crime in the United States actually peaked in the mid-90s. Or sorry, early 90s. Between 90 and 95 is actually when crime peaked. And... Um, violent crime per 100,000 population in the United States, for example, just to read this off, in 1960, it was down to, it was down at around 150 incidents of violent crime per 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Okay. By 19, by 19, uh, and it just continues to go pretty much steadily up from 1960 until you hit 19, looks like about 90, we're looking at about 91, 92, and right. then it, at that point, it's, it goes up to about 750 per 100,000. So it's actually what? That would be like, like five times higher? 
Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, my, I'm not a numbers guy. Don't blame me. The point is, is that, um, so the violent crime rate actually shot up. Like there are a few little dips, but then the interesting thing is since then it's steadily gone down. Yeah. Like we're down to almost half of what it was in the 1990 now. Hmm. And so violent crime, at least this is the United States, by the way, not Canada, but, um, yeah, violent crime overall has been on a downswing, but it did peak in the early 90s. So the early 90s really was a crime-ridden era. They weren't yeah. kidding, actually. It really was like a nasty crime-ridden era. Yeah, it kind of was. The, the, there's um, kind of depending where you go to. I'm sure this is overall for the United States, right? I'm sure there were areas that were really peaceful and there were areas that were like crazy, I'm sure. Yeah, because yeah, I remember... Uh reading a few things that what happened was the seventies were really, really bad. Like in the States for, for violence. Yes. When you get to the eighties, when you get to the mid eighties in a lot of like, um, the big urban areas, you see these big drops start happening. Like, mm -hmm. like famously that was, was New York. When you get to like the eighties, the crime rate in New York starts to like seriously drop. Yes, that's true. I think late, more closer to the late eighties. But keep in mind that's also when the gentrification of New York really begins. Like in yeah. the seventies, it was kind of a hellhole for a while there. Yeah, it, it definitely was, and then that's where you get the the you have to kind of start looking at a lot of demographics because, like you say, you had the gentrification. Mm -hmm. Um, when you get to the beginning of the eighties and a lot of the the big urban areas. Because this is was the 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 bubble economy starts. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of money being put into these big urban areas, and you got gentrification. You got gated communities started becoming a bigger thing in different places, right? And that brings down like your your crime rate in those areas. Whereas mm -hmm. like the poor parts, and there was starting when you get to near the end of the eighties, that you're you're having these big pronounced differences between the rich and the poor parts oh yeah that the poor parts were starting to have a lot of crime and then when you get to the uh the the 90s there was a couple of different initiatives in that mm -hmm. that you start seeing the crime steadily going down hmm. but i know that the 70s was like a big was a big peak for like violence and stuff it wasn't the peak though 90s was worse was it Yep, '90s was worse. Okay. I've been look, I've been looking at the charts here, and the '90s were because the '70s was uh, where is the actual violent crime rate here? In the '70s, actually, relatively, it was going up. It was right. steadily going up. I mean, it went from in the in 1970, it was about 300 per hundred thousand. By 1975, it was 500 per hundred thousand, and okay. then by 1980, it had reached 600 per hundred thousand. So hmm. that's according to the FBI's uh, preliminary estimate twenty uh, from 2012. So the point being that, um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty bad. It was getting really bad there, but it actually continued to get worse. There was a little bit of a dip in the mid-80s, but then right. it just, by, or sorry, early 80s, but by the late 80s, it was shooting back up again. Hmm. So we actually live right now in a time that is only almost where it's still more violent now than it was in the 1960s right which is weird i had thought that the 60s were actually pretty bad now i'm pretty sure and this is something i can't seem to find real numbers on this but i'm going to keep looking at some point because i'm pretty sure the 30s and the 40s were pretty bad 
I'm pretty sure the crime rates for a while there were pretty crazy. And yeah, I think well, the, I think it went down after World War Two is what happened. And yeah, then, and it's gone up again. Oh, was, uh, there's different catches to that. Like you'd think the sixties, it was, uh, would have been worse, but remember a lot of the violence in the sixties was state sponsored. Okay. So be like, look, protesters. Oh, wackity, whack, whack, whack. So that, that, that wasn't considered, again, it goes at that idea that wasn't considered crime. Hmm. Okay. There's some of that going on. That's true. Yeah, and when you get to, I think when you get to, like, the 30s and the 40s, like, the 40s, I think you see, like, a dip in crime just because everybody was overseas getting shot at. Well, yes. Naturally, you're going to get a huge dip in crime yeah. because the, all the people who would have been outcoming the crimes are over fighting the Nazis and the Germ- and the Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> so, not all of them, but a lot of them are. And so, therefore, naturally, yeah, you're going to get a lot of... Uh, you're going to get a real dip in crime. That just makes sense. And then even when they came back, the number of males in society had been severely reduced by that point. I mean, World War II was not as bad as World War One, but still a lot of people died. Yeah. And on top of that, a lot of them now could take advantage of like the GI bills and such so they could get uh, loans to go back to school or, or even they just, you know, the states would pay for their education. Like they had a lot more opportunities basically to make better of themselves after World War Two. Yeah. And also factory jobs were plentiful. I mean, if you really wanted to, you could work back then. You could get a job fairly easily, especially once we got into the 50s and 60s. So I think that's there are many reasons why crime went down because there wasn't really as much crime of desperation. There weren't as many poor people. The middle class was growing. There was opportunity. I think there are many reasons why crime went down. And then it slowly starts to go up as society starts to fragment again as uh, time goes on. Yeah, because there's that and then there's uh, there is a lot of uh, economic effects. Mm-hmm. Of course. It's mostly about the economy, I'd say. Because that was one of the things like in the 70s, there's a, you had a big dip in the economy and I, that lends itself. Because what it, what it, it comes back to, mm-hmm. again, kind of what we were getting at right, right at the beginning. Right. People who commit crime, I'd say almost universally, it's because you feel disconnected from the game. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say that because that, and this is how sometimes the criminals, the hero or the villain, depending on how they're portrayed and what the attitude of the time is, Mm -hmm. because you commit crime either, like you were just saying, out of desperation. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you feel that you have no other choice and, and you're, you're kind of, kind of, um, if I, if I may interlude here, um, I'm going to express the point of view of, uh, of a criminal here for a moment. Okay. Uh Let me just say this. Okay. So, um, there I was completely wasted out of work and down all inside. It's so frustrating as I drift from town to town. I feel as though nobody cares if I live or die. So I might as well begin to put some action in my life. (laughs) <laughs> breaking the law breaking the law so much for the golden future i can't even start i've had every promise broken there's anger in my heart you don't know what it's like you don't have a clue if you did you'd find yourself doing the same thing too breaking the law breaking the law by glenn tipton of course uh kenneth downing and robert halford mm-hmm. <laughs> it's judas priest folks it's from the song breaking the law 
That's why Don's laughing. But you know, actually, it's you know that's you know if you feel your you know if you feel your uh, your life is just a mess. I mean, why not uh, go out in a blaze of glory? Yeah, there's there's that there and there's kind of the other side of that too, mm-hmm. which is the idea that you feel this disconnect, not necessarily out of direct desperation, but because you feel the game is rigged. So it's okay mm. if I cheat. Right. Okay, that makes sense too. Yeah. So that's that's the old uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, the game made me do this, therefore. Yeah, and that's... And it's it, it's it's the two sides of the, the being a, a criminal thing. Mm-hmm. And the core thing is that you feel... That you're, 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 that it, yeah, disconnect, that's not exactly the right word, but you're not part of what, what's going on. Like, you've been left behind. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of it. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. I would, I would, I would agree. There's a big part of it. I mean, there are some people who just don't care. <laughs> like, they're yeah. committing crimes because they're just letting their worst impulses, you know, you know, run amok. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, but a part of that too, unless you have some kind of psychotic disorder, is still this idea like, why should I give a shit about you? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's you're you're not, I'm not part of like your society kind of thing. I've extricated myself from it in that case, right? But I'm not part of things. I'm I'm outside. That's the stereotypical super killer, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the idea that, you know, like the, the psycho killer is the ultimate urban predator and I stalk my prey and blah, blah, blah. I'm somehow different from everyone else. I'm not like you, so I don't have to play by your rules. Ah, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Actually, I would also argue, and I think you could argue, that a fair number of criminals are actually mentally ill as well. Um, it, to what degree is a different, like, it depends what they, that can get into what mental illness is, et cetera, et cetera, as well. But, um, I think a fair number of them are dealing with, uh, uh, we'll call it mental malfunctions <laughs> as right. the case may be, <laughs> um, that may, that may cause them to be, uh, less than good, less than, uh, uh, ideal members of society. I'll right. go that far. Um, I'm not saying all of them, not by any means, but I'm saying that there's a fair number of them that some of them just ain't right. <laughs> yeah, there's there's that, but you run into the problem mm-hmm. of, of like we were saying, we tend to group everything together. Right. So there's a tendency to say that, you know, criminal tendencies in general are some kind of mental disorder. And, and right. that goes, and that tends to go to that notion that the view of crime that you're a criminal because there's something wrong with you. Mm. It's right. in this case, it's a hardware problem, but it's that same idea of, of crime being like a, a straight up moral failing mm. that people see it in that regard because it's that notion. There's something wrong with the criminal. They are somehow internally defective. Right. Cause and... you're, pro- you're probably right. I mean, I think they're, yeah, oh, no, I'm pretty sure. I, I, exa- yeah, exactly. There's the ish part where it's it's complicated. It's it's a really messy, complicated thing. There is mm-hmm. not a criminal gene that's making, I don't think that's making these people into criminals. 
but at the same, not most of them, maybe for a few of them, there actually is. <laughs> um, no, I, but I think it's maybe more likely that certain parts of their brain, especially the parts that to control impulses, like impulse yeah. control, is definitely a huge part of it. Like the people who, because of, say, fetal alcohol syndrome or other reasons, have poor impulse control are more likely to end up getting themselves into trouble. But again, it depends on their upbringing, depends on a whole bunch of other factors, too. That yeah, doesn't automatically make them a criminal. Yeah, and, and, and now the funny part, too, is that can actually go to the other extreme of what a criminal is, the idea they're victims of society. Because in a lot of ways, we're not taught what to do mm-hmm. about our, our like impulsive and negative tendencies. If anything, a lot of them are cultivated these days. Right. Because we, we, we talked about, we did a whole show about that. The idea of, of people or groups that are willing to sell you back your own outrage. Yeah, yeah, of course. To get you on board. We, with uh, con- rampant consumerism, you're taught to give in to your impulses, even if it's going to put you in debt, if it's a, a big detriment. Well, if it works to the benefit of other groups, your, your impulses are A-OK. Yeah, even to the point like it's a North American thing mm-hmm. that if you're sad, mm-hmm. it's assumed there's something wrong with you. Right. You must be depressed. Get some pills. Like, you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to be angry. You're taught that feeling these things is shameful. And mm-hmm. I think this leads to a lot of problems because feeling that kind of thing isn't bad. It's natural. It's what you yeah. do with those feelings. Exactly. It's how you channel them, how you direct them, what you do with them that's important. I agree. Yeah, and and and, and I think again, like looking since the eighties the going into like the nineties, there's sort of been this weird mm-hmm. and it might just be the pharmaceutical companies pushing this notion. Oh, I think it's that's a big part of it. <laughs> but but yeah, this this weird idea that yeah, you're you're not supposed to be angry ever at all. You're not supposed to be sad or frustrated ever at all it's just not supposed to happen to you Mm. yeah everyone's supposed to be calm and controlled and obviously you just didn't take the right kind of soma if you if you take it you'll be (laughs) fine don't worry don't worry we've got the right pills for you yeah because it 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 always puts there's two things that this kind of kind of topic puts me in mind of Mm -hmm. and one is sesame street well, we are talking they, about villains, so let's talk about Oscar. <laughs> no, I was thinking they, they used to have Big a bird. Bit with... Yeah, I was always suspicious of that guy. <laughs> He's not right. But it's it's the idea of um they used to have the this one feature when we were kids with the angry goat. Okay. I I, I remember that, yeah. That was the premise was it's okay to get mad. Yes, it's yeah, gonna, yeah. It's gonna just write it out. Yeah. And then and then the other thing that this always puts me in mind of is, um, you see it come up a lot, the idea of uh, the death penalty is the deterrent to crime. Mm-hmm. And the one argument that kind of disproves that, that for some reason no one ever makes. Okay. And that's the idea, okay, let's say I, I murder somebody. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that like the you know, the strictest punishment, like a death sentence, will keep people from murdering. Mm -hmm. It generally doesn't because people murder under two sets of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They murder because they lose their shit and just end up beating somebody or stabbing someone to death. Mm -hmm. 
and they murder as the end result of a carefully crafted cunning plan to do away with like a spouse or a child or whoever. Mm-hmm. Yep. In neither cases is punishment a detriment because the person who just snaps has no concept of, of ramifications at that point. Mm-hmm. And the person who comes up with the intricate plan thinks they're not going to get caught, so they don't yep. care about ramifications either. Exactly. Mm. So therefore, it doesn't work. Not at all. Yeah. But nobody ever puts forth that kind of discussion because you usually hear it from one end or the other of of what is a criminal. If you're a victim of society, then you don't deserve to die because it's not your fault. And if mm-hmm. there's something inherently wrong with you, get off my fucking planet, you know? Right. I mean, there is the small point that it, it does prevent them from offending again. <laughs> Once they're caught, that, that, that's kind of the end of it. It does prevent them from being released and then going out and offending again, which I think is the claim made by most of the the pro-execution people is that, uh, or whatever you refer to them as, um, that, you know, we're removing them from the gene pool and we're removing them from society, period. Although considering how long it takes to actually get an execution through, I think it's like 20 or 30 years in the American legal system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's just, no, it's not going to happen anyway. <laughs> well, You're just course- warehousing them, basically. Of course, that was Judge Death's argument, too, in the Judge Dredd comic. Oh, it was? What was it? Yeah, his his name is Sidney, by the way. They did his origin, and, and when he was a, a, a like a living judge in his world, mm-hmm. it disturbed him, the recidivism rate. How, oh, right. Like, if you were a jaywalker, you'd just jaywalk again. So if he killed you, you're not going to do that. And then he thought, and everybody's like a potential crook, so that's where he got the idea, we'll just kill everybody. Problem solved. And is that what he did? Yes, he did. That was that <laughs> so. Was that's what you mean by his world. So, so he's not from the same world as Judge Dredd is in. You, oh, you don't know anything about Judge Death? No, no, I don't actually. Oh, he comes from a a, a, a parallel world. Okay, that was similar to the the regular Judge Dredd setting. But when he and his buddies came up with this idea, mm-hmm. they ended up using black magic to turn themselves into like undead monsters, and then they just slowly killed off everybody on their world. Oh, okay. That's right. Judge Death has a whole pack of guys with him, doesn't he? Uh, there's six, technically seven of them. Okay. So there are six horsemen of the apocalypse, technically seven in the Judge Dredd world. Yeah, kind of. The way it worked was Judge Death shows up first. Hmm. And he was got kind of end up here by accident. He comes back a few stories later and there's Death, Fire, Fear, and Mortis. Oh, Okay. And you find out that they were they were like his buddies when he was like a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, years, like at least a decade later, they they did his origin where you found out there was um, the two two witches mm-hmm. that were the ones that converted them, and they became dark judges. They were phobia and nausea. Okay, <laughs> right? Because they were the two that eventually killed Judge Dredd. They killed Dredd. Yeah, but he gets better. Don't worry. Okay, good, good. Okay, yeah. glad to hear it. And then in one of the uh, the Judge Dredd Batman team ups, yeah, they did. The Joker actually becomes one of the Dark Judges. He gets converted for a little bit. Right. Okay. I think I read that one actually. Yeah, that was a long yes. time ago. But I think I read it. Okay. So technically, there's seven. 
so here's a question. I always because I was thinking about this not too long ago. This is complete tangent, but whatever. Uh-huh. Um, is so if there are like Judge Death and everything in the Judge Dread setting, are there exorcist judges? Like, is there a Judge Exorcist? Oh yeah, yeah, because they're part of Side Division. Oh, of course yeah. they are. What am I thinking? Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. So Side Division has exorcists in it who specialize in dealing with evil spirits and demons and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they've been in it for a while. Okay, just checking. Because Jed- the uh, Judge the Dread visor- really is a kitchen soup setting. Oh hell yeah, that's kind of kitchen sink setting. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> kitchen soup just as good. That's if it's a uh, if it's a Ron Smith story with his like super giant violent fight scenes. Okay, okay. Kitchen there we soup go. is probably better. <laughs> <laughs> so what about a villainy in comic books? I mean, because comic books, especially superhero comics, are pretty much entirely driven by villains. They are. There's there's kind of two weird things that happen there. Mm-hmm. Because in the uh, golden age of comics, you had a lot of crime comics. Yes, you did. Yep. And they were they were they were of the uh, the the crime doesn't pay, which was one of the actual comics. Mm-hmm. Where the villains were presented as like a superstitious cowardly lot. Yes. Yeah. And and they were kind of they were almost horror comics the way they're because they were like tended to be really violent and gruesome and they were drawn all dark and they were weird because it was it was that idea that that criminals were like subversive defective blights on all of society kind of thing mm-hmm. and then after the comics code they died out and what ends up happening because the comics code basically said you couldn't depict crime yeah i know i remember that yep yep and then, Th- and- thanks wortham yeah, and this is where supervillains really come from because mm-hmm. in the golden age, um, you didn't have a lot of powered villains. They were gangsters, or they were terrorists, or uh, fifth column types during like the forties, right? Uh, when you get after the code, you kind of really get the heyday of the supervillain because what ends up happening is I can't show crime. And this is famously when all the bad guys are like, I'm going to take over the world because that's not against the law. Exactly. So that problem solved. Yeah. And, and that's where you'll get like the, the weird, the weird, I'm going to build copies of the hero that will make him look bad (laughs) because you couldn't really rob banks anymore sort of thing. Unless, unless you did it in such a strange far out way that it couldn't possibly be emulated. Exactly. Well, if you were robbing banks on Mars, then it was okay. That's right. Or if I had a giant robot, or if I was using my, like, transluso ray that would make it so I could walk through the bank wall and just grab the money. That was cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that you could do. Pulling a pistol and going, stick him up. That was against the comics code. Yep. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, that's... That became such a superheroism, like for supervillains and such, that um, it's also one of the reasons why superheroes became squeaky clean at that point, too. Because, of course, 40s superheroes regularly murdered villains. That wasn't really an issue. Oh, not at all. No. Um, and they, they were of the Pope era. And then it's suddenly, yeah. of course, in the 50s, they're suddenly like, well, no crime. Well, that includes the heroes. So sorry, guys. You all have to have code versus killing now. And yep. um, so that's where suddenly all superheroes become squeaky clean from that point on. And villains yeah. as well, kind of. Yeah, and, and comics in general, because mm-hmm. uh, post-code comics kind of became kid stuff. Mm-hmm. 
and that lasted into like the undergrounds and the the undergrounds where we had that little twist where they depict crime mostly drug use in mm-hmm. in like a positive light but you also had a lot of like anti-heroes mm-hmm. because these were coming out of the counterculture the idea that the law itself had been usurped and wasn't serving the people so that was what a lot of heroes did and this is why they were basically like terrorists mm-hmm. right but they were ter- but they would be in their setting fighting against an obviously corrupt authority and that was that was going into like we said with the 70s cops it was that idea that you mm-hmm. had to get your hands dirty was how it was how it was seen like you couldn't just be the squeaky clean up standing noble guy yeah yeah exactly yep makes sense um, and so things get slowly dirtied. And I'd say during the 80s, kind of, like when they basically got rid of the code, we started to see villains shift. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the problems, actually, that superhero comics have run into is they don't quite know what to do. And they haven't known what to do for quite a while um, in terms of they don't want to shift to where back to the old style where the heroes kill the villains and such. But they don't want to... How can I put this? They they want their comics to be quote unquote a little more realistic and a little rougher. Yeah. And so they're in that, they're kind of stuck in this nether realm in between. Yeah. Cause tying in part of it is cause I don't think a lot of the companies know who their audience is. But yeah. That's definitely a big part of it. That's true. Yeah. So y- you don't know what angle to take because mm-hmm. you're not a hundred percent sure who's actually reading these things. It would help if you did. It would help if you knew. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, but unfortunately, if you know, please let Marvel know and DC because they have no clue. Yeah, because again, I think what what you, marketing the marketing department is all about the movies now. So the comics are just sort of on their own. Well, the comics are basically a holding company, right? To keep yeah. the licenses, so they can keep making movies and do other stuff with them. Yeah, basically. That's what it pretty much amounts to. So, so yeah. So comic book, but comic book villains have always been the driving force. I mean, most comic book stories are really traditional anyway. Have been about the villain because the hero can't really change or do anything. So it's usually the story of how the villain goes, tries to do something, and usually ends up changing or at least going from free to in jail um, by the end of the story. Um, or usually they're trying to get revenge for something. Yeah, it 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 kind of depends because it 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 floats around a lot too. Because mm-hmm. I know um, if you look at say British comics, mm-hmm. they'll do stories that make the villain the hero. Okay, and they've they've done that all along, and they'll have them. It's something we never really did here. They'll have them still be the villain, and they're clearly the villain, but they're the protagonist. Um, a couple I can think of right away was um, Jet had a couple. There was the the dwarf, mm-hmm. who was this like like uh, like famous thief guy, mm-hmm. and the stories were written from his point of view, being a thief. Right. Um, there was another one. Uh, was it Von Hoppmann's War, I think it was mm-hmm. called? Okay. It was about, he was a mad scientist who was a, a uh, like a Nazi scientist that escaped the war. 
came to England and his shtick was he had this chemical that would make um it would make different animals he gave it to grow huge and be compliant for a limited amount of time. Okay. And he was trying to like destroy England with his like giant mutant monsters. Mm-hmm. And he was clearly a villain, but he was the the protagonist. The story was written from his point of view. Right. Um, there's other ones. Action did a lot of this because action was their basically their shtick was to be uh they were like dark and gritty before dark and gritty. Mm-hmm. And they had they had a few. They did like Hook Jaw is probably the most well known, which is about a giant shark eating people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It, I know about that one, yeah. It's a shark that eats people, that's what it is. Um There was a couple more Dredger was kind of your your typical like tough guy cop film but and it's another one that it broaches camp just by how over the top they do it mm-hmm. um they did uh is a hellman of hammer company was another one in action that was huh. about an it was about a nazi tank commander because the americans occasionally did actually at some points they did have uh i know dc definitely did i think marvel did too they did occasionally do comics about their villains and the villains were still the villains but they were as you say the protagonists of the story um there were uh doom had his own comic for a bit i know the joker had his had more than one comic over the years um, they've done that a couple of times. Now, usually, of course, within the context of the story, they're kind of anti-heroes in the sense that they're usually the less bad villain. They're the less bad version. There's always someone worse who they're actually usually going up against. Yeah. And so we're watching them do the, yeah, be the anti-hero, basically. But I imagine that's the same case with most of those British comics, too. Yeah, kind of. If you if you look with, um, like, mm-hmm. the Marvel and DC when they did it, Mm-hmm. It was the seventies, mostly the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Because there used to be, for example, there was a Marvel comic called Supervillain Team Up. Yeah, that was that was it was mostly Doctor Doom and uh, Submariner. Yeah, yeah. And That's they true. did. You could also count too that um, in the seventies, Marvel did a bunch of horror comics mm-hmm. that you could argue were that same idea that it was it was a monster that was almost like an anti-hero. Yeah, that's true. Because that was like Werewolf by Night. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yep. Uh, Dracula. Yeah. Yeah, they did Dracula. You're right, Marvel did a whole bunch of them, actually. You're exactly right. Yeah, that's true. Morbius, the living vampire, the living mummy was one. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Frankenstein's monster. You could say even like a Son of Satan is based on that premise. Swamp Thing. Ghost Rider. Man thing. <laughs> Giant size man thing. Okay, you win. <laughs> That's an old joke, but anyway. <laughs> but yeah, and and, and, and it was like a, uh it was again like the that was like the seventies thing where you were more forgiving of crime mm-hmm. if it was in the service of usurping villainy, but it was still that idea that that, that there was that that thin line that these characters were were here. Although Dracula wasn't exactly a hero in the Marvel ones, he was still kind. He was a sympathetic villain. Well, didn't they mostly portray? Because I've read some of them. He's he's similar to Cut to the Hulk in some ways, where yeah. he's doing stuff, and it's mostly from the point of view of the people who are chasing him. 
But the thing is, there are very often situations where he will end up in conflict with another villain. Yeah, so, and that was, and sometimes he eats a hamburger. But <laughs> that's and that, and that, and that was what it was because there was um, at the time the the Warren magazines, uh, Vampirella. Mm-hmm. did kind of a similar story because they uh dracula was a character in it mm-hmm. and they had done a storyline where he was trying to reform and okay. oh, there, was a, there was this character i think she was actually like a reincarnated goddess that was trying to help him and she gets murdered and he just loses his shit and becomes mm-hmm. like you know this rampaging villain again but the marvel one was kind of a that that yeah, like you you were saying, it's he was trying to be less of a villain, but kept running afoul of people who were just worse than him. Yeah, well, they did. Uh, Mar- DC did uh, Black Adam. They basically reformed oh. Black Adam. They they basically turned him into Vegeta. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's literally what they did, apparently. Um, and so he eventually kind of got reformed, and um, but for the most part, his stories are still about him. Yeah, him going up against people who are worse than him. Yeah, because that was the kind of uh, I think they did a super, uh, Secret Society of Super Villains too. Mm-hmm. They did at that that time, which was like the uh, the anti Super Friends. Yes, that's true. There is a Secret Society of Super Villains. I don't know how yeah. long it lasted, but there was one. Oh wait, oh no. Uh, let's see. I've got a listing here for it. Um, it had fifteen issues. Or correction, no. That this is one from twenty. 20- well, no, it was added in 2016, so I don't know when it actually aired. Well, let me take a quick look. Because, yeah, the the comic, I think, was like uh, 70s going into the early 80s. It's the 1970s. It's yeah. literally the 1970s. I'm looking I'm looking at it here. Uh, it is, this was published May, June 1976 was the first issue. And uh, the Secret Society of Supervillains. And so this is how the it's story of basically how they all end up together. And do stuff. I don't know what they're doing, but whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think it was... Um, they were still being villains, but it just never worked out for them. If I, rem- I didn't read too many of them. I have vague memories. But I think that's what they mu- they amounted to. Uh, I believe that. I'll have to take a look at them sometime. Um, and then, of course, in the 80s, we saw that again. It, it's called The Suicide Squad. Yeah, and... Well, they had a few because they also had uh, Vigilante. Oh, that's true. And Punisher is basically the, the, the same kind of idea. The Punisher? Yeah, he basically is. He's, You're right. He's, he's basically he's, a villain. Yeah, yeah. he's 70s, though, because he showed, he, I think, when he first appeared. Mm-hmm. And then he got his own series in the 80s. And when he first appeared, he was like a, an actor. He was a villain. villain. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that, that was the way. He's one of, he's one of Sp- Spider-Man or, or Daredevil. I think Spider-Man. I think sure? if he was a Daredevil villain, they would have made him not look as much like Bullseye. That's true. Okay, valid yeah. point. Yep. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was a Spider-Man villain. Okay, last thought. Villains in music. So what do you have to, what do you have to say about that? I can think of three times mm-hmm. when music really exonerated the criminal and the salacious and the vicious and vile. Okay, but let's not talk about Bing Crosby. Let's let's go on. <laughs> Damn him. <laughs> exactly. Continue. Uh, because one of them, ha- two of them happened in the 70s. 
Mm -hmm. And one of them happens in the 90s, which is the 70s again. Okay, got it. Because the 90s is when you got like your your like gangster rap and all that. Mm -hmm. Which exonerated villainy. It was all about being a crook and to like cartoon proportions. Of course. And prior to that, in the 70s, you had punk. Mm -hmm. Which was all about fuck you society. Yes, it was. And you also had the outlaw country movement. That's true. Okay. Which which is is again it's it's all about, you know, like the music usually they find Jesus at some point, but when you look at like the musicians, oh my god, these people were animals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, like um there's a TV series, uh, Tales from the Tour Bus. The first season is about mm -hmm. all like the seventies country guys. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend watching it be, because you'll you'll watch it because we all lived through like the nineties when oh my god these rappers ah huh? no mm -hmm. no <laughs> no these country guys were more insane right okay there's there's a line at the uh, intro because Mike Judge does it and he does a little intro and mm -hmm. I forget who it was but the statement was and like everyone else on this show he shot a guy <laughs> <laughs> so right. But, okay, but, and and those were the things because if you remember, like again, the seventies, people are all unhappy and distressed, and you had stuff like the the probably the most famous example was uh, "Take This Job and Shove It." Mm -hmm. I remember that, yeah. Which was a song and a movie, I recall. Yes, it was. And yeah, it, it expressed this idea that you know the game is rigged, so I'm just not going to play. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And that's kind of been a running theme of, like, you know, hardcore country ever since. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, that, that it, it's hmm. this idea that things just aren't like they were, and, and that's terrible. Right, right. Okay, makes sense. Well, I mean, let's face it, there's a good chunk of middle America that feels left behind. It has for a long time, and has yeah, a lot of resentment and anger. Yeah, because yeah, essentially they were. You know? Well, because they were, exactly. I'm not arguing yeah. with that. Yeah, they were. But it's but it's it can be kind of funny to see how things change too because you get um Charlie Daniels mm -hmm. did a song back in the sixties uh, uh Uneasy Rider mm -hmm. and it was about being like a long hair pot smoking type that ends up in one of these like little redneck towns mm -hmm. and then a few years later he does the song uh, Simple Man where he talks about how like all drug dealers should be taken out to the swamp and fed to alligators. And you're like, okay, what happened? Someone oh. got really angry. Someone found Jesus. Cause that's, again, that's kind of how it works. Okay. Well that works too. Yeah. And, and the funny thing, cause, cause like hardcore country and hardcore rap are essentially the same thing mm -hmm. because the rappers always find Jesus too. Do they? Yeah, they 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 all do their song about their like come to God moment, and I'm oh. thankful for all the money and wealth and that that I got, and with my God given talent, and yeah, it it's it's a theme. yeah okay yeah I can see that yeah that's true eventually, and in a way, I mean that kind of makes sense because if you think about it, their come to Jesus moment probably comes at around the same time they basically decide to settle down and have a family and everything. Yeah, and, and they're not angry anymore because they have a lot of money. Exactly. There's that too. Yeah. 
but they're but it's all empty and vapid and so they need jesus to actually make their life feel complete and whole again because they know they've discovered that being a famous rap star or country singer and having money doesn't mean shit if you don't have jesus in your life yeah and and again now i don't know how many believe that but that mm-hmm. seems to be part of the theme like that's that's the uh the reform moment that makes all the wacky crazy shit you did beforehand you know it's okay though he's he's better now Mm-hmm. When you look at it and you look at how uh, how that works, it's really weird. I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a little odd. Okay, that is a little odd. Okay. So I guess that's at least some of the portrayal in music. I mean, I'm sure there are other examples, but we don't really have time because we're running uh, so we're kind of running out of time for this show. I yep. guess we'll have to talk maybe about villains in comics and music some other time in more detail. Anyway. Maybe like the the comic thing is pretty pretty cut and dry. The music yeah, thing true. gets music thing gets a little weird because there's a a lot of music is based on rebellion. Mm. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's not criminal rebellion or villainous rebellion. Mm-hmm. It's partying too hard or it's it's um rebellion in that you're talking about some crazy far out concept or world or character or something mm. that the, the, the three big examples would be like your, your outlaw country, your gangster rap and punk. Or were you really, really see? Cause, cause they all to some degree or other advocate outright criminality and outright villainy. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, until you get rich and famous. Well, yeah, because at that point, you're no longer, you know, the rebel outside. You're part of the game. Yeah, well, it's like Dave Mustaine said, it, it's hard to feel really angry when you've got like a Ferrari in the driveway. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's the perfect spot to finish the show on. Thanks, so, Dave. so thanks, Dave. And uh, <laughs> thank you, listener, for joining us on this um, somewhat all over the place, but definitely interesting journey into villainy um and crime in popular culture as it may be um we hope you enjoyed it if you have thoughts about villains and uh, or uh, evil impulses uh drop by obeythedna.com and write your thoughts in our comment section and let us know what you think about this topic and always remember crime doesn't pay except if you're a musician apparently then it really pays so that's yeah. where you want to go folks good night everyone bye Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!